We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside my co-host, Alan Williams. As always, it is great to be here. It's great to be back in the midst of yet another football season. We have a super, super exciting show for you today. Uh, We have on tap Shane Matthews, which we're going to talk about some of the quarterbacks, uh, which we did last year. And those of you that listened last year might recall that Luke Del Rio was one of his favorites. So we'll check in with him and see how he feels about Luke this year. We're going to talk with Blake Alderman to get a recruiting update on uh, how well we've essentially done in the offseason and how... Do miracles exist? Have you seen West Virginia in the fall? The colors exploding everywhere you look. Driving a country road, hiking a forest, seeing the small towns. I mean, how is this possible? You know the expression, you won't believe your eyes? Trust me, you won't. West Virginia is the third most forested state in the U.S. So plan your fall getaway now at wvtourism.com important that was to the program. And we're also going to talk with Michigan's Jim Brandsetter, the play-by-play guy for Michigan, as well as for the Detroit Lions. So lots of exciting stuff on tap today. Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing so good. It's game week. Finally here. This has been a really long summer without football. I'm stoked to see some college football, big time college football, actually, this weekend. I know we got a little taste last weekend, but some monster games. One of the biggest, of course, our game. Could not be more excited. How are you feeling? I feel great. It's it's Monday in Gainesville. And for you, Alan, it's Monday night in Moscow, <laughs> which is, is just, uh, for those of you who didn't listen to episode zero, which has some important news uh, on the show, you'll want to check that out. Alan is recording from Moscow this season. He, he's there with his job. 
And uh, we'll be bringing you the show each week with me in Gainesville and Alan in Moscow. So uh, yeah, how many other Gator podcasts can say that? But uh, <laughs> we're looking to book Vladimir Putin on one of these episodes. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. And it feels, you know, it feels consistent, Putin aside, that that we have a Gator game this week where there's a hurricane affecting it. It wouldn't be <laughs> September or October uh, on the Gator football schedule if there wasn't some weather related situation that people have to look at and monitor. Indeed. Well, let's jump right in and talk about what we're thinking and feeling about this season. James, how do you feel about the state of the UF program heading into this season? Well, in the offseason in our last episode, uh, we had mentioned that there were several things that had to go right for me to feel like the long-term direction of the program is is there. It's it's essentially in good hands. And, and that's, that's happened. Uh, for me, I, I mentioned recruiting. We had to see an uptick in recruiting, and Blake's going to set the table for us on that, so I won't spoil that story, but... That has happened. The coaches that he hired, the recruits that we brought in, the momentum we have for the long term, I now feel like is in place. So I, I definitively enter this season feeling more confident about the long term state of the program than I ever have before under the McElwain uh, regime. Yeah, there's a lot of confidence around the program, a lot of optimism, I think, both inside it and outside it. And I'm, I'm they're going to have to back it up on the field. But if more than any time since his hiring, the arrow feels definitively up. Now we could get a couple of weeks in and 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 feel like you know that all that went away. But uh, heading into this first game, uh, just some excitement and buzz that I haven't felt around the program in a little while. But I'm not sure the national media has been able to pick up on this buzz and excitement that maybe Gator Nation is feeling. The Gators coming to the season ranked 17th in the first AP poll. James, you feel like that is an ranking does that feel like reflective of where the program is at it feels right to me as excited as i am about the long-term future of the program right now given who our coaching staff is how McElwain has addressed his weaknesses what the facilities look like just sort of the general buzz this particular season in a vacuum on its own has a lot of question marks and we're going to spend the first half of this podcast discussing the roster and the second half of the podcast discussing a tactical game against michigan which of course is a slice of what we're going to face each week with regards to why this season may be great, but could also be challenging. So 17 feels right to me. It's saying we're an unknown program at this point in time. You can't necessarily trust us. We do have some upswing momentum. Uh, that feels like a, a good spot for me, for the Gators to be in. I, I, it doesn't really matter per se, but it feels it feels right to me. I like that spot. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I would actually agree with that. I was thinking, you know, there there might be a little higher coming this season with, you know, what they've accomplished the last couple of seasons, but there's still so many question marks on this team. And so it's probably an appropriate place. And you're right. It matters not at all, but it's always an interesting little check-in to see where people are, you know, like observing the program and how they're feeling about it from a national point of view. Sure. And it certainly sets the table for number 17 versus 11. And if you get into any of the, the fun games that I'm a part of with long, short polls and, pick five teams that have less than 40 wins to win your poll this year. You do a lot of research on sort of what positions struggle. And not surprisingly, most AP teams ranked in the teens, they tend to fall out of the poll most often. And I think that's about where the Gators could be. I mean, we're going to talk about the floor and the ceiling a bit later, but it's about right. So I like that. 
this week is going to do a lot to sort of address kind of where we are, at least in the immediate short term. But before we get into the position groups and what we think about the team as a whole, we wanted to talk with Blake Alderman, our recruiting expert, especially for this show, to just give us an overview of, of what has happened in this offseason. It's been a tremendous offseason for Gator football recruiting. We want to kind of put this into context for you. Uh, if you're someone who follows recruiting excruciatingly in detail, this is not news to you. If you're someone who sort of turns their brain off for the offseason and is kind of aware what's happening, this will explain how it's happened, why it's happening, and what it sort of means for the future. And uh, we're going to spend a couple of minutes talking with him about that. I know I'm excited about hearing about it because it has been a really momentous uh, moment for Jim McElwain's staff. We are joined again by friend of the program, Blake Alderman. He's a recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports. You can find him on Twitter at, at Blake underscore Alderman. Blake, thanks for being on again. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is my first time since I've made the move from Rivals to 24-7. So it's always good to, uh, it's always good to jump on. Hey, it's always great to have you. And last time we spoke, we discussed how important it was for Mac to address the weakness in recruiting. It had been the number one thing that that close followers of the program were frustrated with. We know it's been a tremendous offseason. It's probably too trivial to ask you what the update is and how has he fared. But essentially, what's the update and how has he fared in the offseason? I mean, this is a totally different situation than what you and I talked about just four or five months ago. You know, I think the biggest thing that really kind of attributed to Florida's success recruiting-wise, I think it's a combination of the new assistants they hired. I think when you bring in a guy like Jawan Sider, the running backs coach at Florida now, uh, you know, he came in with a big deal of being a big-time recruiter. You know, he's a guy that, you know, recruited very well in the state of Florida, you know, all the way in West Virginia, you know, getting a lot of these guys from South Florida to, you know, go all the way to Morgantown, which is a feat in itself if you've ever been there. There's not really a lot going on there. So, you know, you get that guy and you put that Gator logo on his, you know, his jackets and his shirts and stuff. And, you know, that, that, that brand in the state of Florida has power, you know, especially whenever you've got a guy who can really sell it. You know, I think that, uh, you know, that was a big get for Florida. You know, I think Corey Bell, the new defensive back at, uh, coach at Florida, is another guy who's done well. He's definitely – been a big part of Florida's 2019 success, which is the number one class on 24-7 sports as well, which is kind of jumping farther ahead. But, uh, you know, there's been some success there. You know, I think another guy, too, that, you know, is kind of an unsung hero of Florida's recruiting is uh, the new O-line coach, Brad Davis. Uh, The offensive line crop in the state of Florida and even in the country, this class is, you know, it's pretty good, especially in the state of Florida. And uh, Brad Davis has Florida in the mix for a lot of these offensive linemen that probably weren't maybe leaning towards Florida as much as they were whenever Mike Summers was there. So, you know, I think the – the addition of adding, you know, some, some guys that can recruit onto the staff, you know, mixed with, you know, some of the other guys like Chris Rump, uh, you know, Tim Skipper, you know, guys like that who have been doing a good job recruiting uh, for Florida, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, that was a big, definitely a big part, but, you know, I think another part of it too is whenever you can get, you know, kind of that, that bell cow recruiter, you know, a, a guy who's a highly ranked guy, you know, who's on the cusp of five-star, I, th- I believe he just dropped in Matt Corral. Uh, you get a guy like that, you know, that, that's, you know, showing up a lot of camps when, you know, has all the stars next to his name, you know, th- that's going to be a thing that's going to attract other guys. You know, and I think that if you look at Florida's success, you know, right after Friday Night Lights, you know, top 100 recruit wide receiver Jamar Chase jumps on board, you know, shortly after that, top 50 recruit Jacob Copeland jumps on board, and then even kind of going past that, you know, four-star running back Damian Pierce run, jumps on board. You know, that's three offensive weapons that have jumped right on board shortly after Matt Corral, and I think, you know, I'm not a math guy, don't line. I think when you see a guy like that jumping on board, whenever you get a face like that for your program, I would definitely say Matt Corral had a big part in Florida's success. So projecting forward, do you feel like this class is going to launch 
into the top five? And will UF be recruiting at that around top five level from now on? You know, I think that, you know, it's certainly something that Florida fans expect, you know, not necessarily even from now on. Florida fans have always expected to have a recruiting class in the top five. If not, you know, top 10 is absolutely like some of their floor, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, Florida fans have expected this. I don't think when you have an SEC program that's in the state of Florida, I, I don't see that there should be a problem recruiting, you know. So I expect, you know, I expect this to be, I think in Florida fans expect this to be something that Florida should be doing every year. Um, obviously, it's a great start now, and like I said before, if you look into the 2019 class, it's number one in the country now, I believe, with 12 commits in there. So, you know, McElwain's definitely looking forward to, you know, hitting recruiting hard, and, I, you know, there's some guys that are definitely leaning towards Florida uh, in this 2018 class still that are, you know, kind of on the cusp of, you know, pulling the trigger, and, you know, if Florida can land a couple more guys here and there, you know, they can bump Tennessee, who currently has 23 commits in their class, you know, Florida, if Florida lands a couple more, you know, they could definitely jump Tennessee and they would have the number one recruiting class in the SEC currently, which would put them at number six in the nation. They're sitting at seven now. So, you know, Florida's definitely got some big hitters left on their board still, you know, a lot of four-star and five-star recruits. So, you know, I definitely think top five class is certainly possible this cycle. Um, You know, I think that, uh, you know, depending on how a couple of these guys, you know, fall their way, you know, they could even go higher than five, but I think five is absolutely attainable. So is it safe to say, maybe not safe to say, but in your estimation, would you say that 2018 will be the quote unquote lowest ranked class of the next four or five years? Is it only going to get better from 2018 or is there a chance that we take a step back in recruiting in the next two or three years, given what you've seen thus far? Uh, You know, that's hard to say, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a psychic, you know, I can't look that far down the road, but I definitely think that if you look at where it stands now, if Florida can continue to finish in the top five and then you have the number one class next year, it certainly looks that way that this could be that this could be the foothold, you know, if Florida continues to recruit that hard. You know, obviously I don't know how things are going to go in 2020, 2021, you know, things like that. But, you know, it, we're where things stand now. It certainly looks that way with how 2019 could be a really special class for Florida and, you know, number one in the country. Yeah, and it certainly seems that once you build the recruiting momentum, that wave continues on unless – your performance in the field really suffers. And so speaking or of performance, you know, you so take other jobs, you know, a lot of these college coaches, you know, they, they make moves really quickly. So, you know, th- there's a lot of you know variables that I obviously I can't predict in there, but, you know, I think if Florida continues to hold on to their, you know, their coach they have now, they continue to show up on the field. Sure. You know, I think that that could happen. Sure. Yeah. Well, even, even if you get the head coach that recognizes how to hire coaches that continue to Absolutely. recruit well, you sort of build that reputation sure. as a guy that does that. Blake, always a pleasure. We'll definitely visit with you as we head on further into this season. If you want to find out far more about recruiting, including all the various players that are on the current class of 2018, uh, including the ones we're trying to get, you can follow Blake at Blake underscore Alderman. He is the recruiting analyst for 247 Sports. Blake, thanks again. We look forward to talking with you next time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The next segment of the podcast is going to be a season preview, which takes you through the roster, offense and defense, coaching changes, and what we think is achievable. If you feel like you've got enough knowledge on that and you want to jump straight to the breakdown of the Michigan game, head to the hour and 19 minute mark. Otherwise, keep listening. All right, so we want to get you guys all prepped for the season. And we're going to take a few minutes to walk through each of the positional groups and give you our thoughts on maybe who a breakout player is going to be, who's the star of the group. And also maybe our confidence level and how that group's going to do this year. I think we're going to start with the offense, right, James? Yeah, let's dive right in with the offense. And let's start with the offensive line, uh, something that has been a weakness historically for this McIlwain team. 
this year, I think both of us are going to expect a much better production out of this unit. And so what we're going to do as we break down each position group is we're going to give you the starters. We're going to give you a guy who we think is going to be the best player in that position group. And then a guy that we think uh, is going to be either the most versatile or maybe a surprise candidate to earn playing time and contribute. So Alan, walk us through who the starters are going to be. So left tackle, you've got Martez Ivy. Left guard, newcomer Brett Heggie at center, TJ McCoy. Right guard, Fred Johnson. And then right tackle, the surprise player from last year, Juwan Taylor. And, you know, the guy that everybody is pointing to is Martez Ivy. This is the guy that has to have a really big year in order for this line to, you know, kind of make the transition to a strength of the team rather than a weakness or maybe just an average play. And the guy for me, I think that, you know, I'm expecting a lot out of this year is Juwan Taylor. I mean, he played a lot as a freshman, you know, started almost the whole season. And this guy has a chance to turn into someone dominant over there on the right side and really turn our run game into something, you know, kind of exciting more than just we got some yards on that play. What about you, James? What do you think? What's your surprise or breakout guy for this group? Well, Brett Heggie is going to be my breakout guy. Uh, he He's a guy that you probably haven't heard of if you don't follow the message board or the, the plethora of articles out there super closely. If you have, then you're very familiar with this guy, but he's really made waves in fall camp. Uh, young guy, and he could potentially be one of our best linemen when it's all said and done. He obviously earned the spot over Tyler Jordan, who's sort of a super reserve that can play every single spot. But I think most importantly for me, for the first time in a long time, I like feel really good about our offensive line. Uh, really, really good about it at this moment in time. We don't have a ton of depth yet. We do have a lot of bodies, but if we had one or two guys go down, it would it would put some guys in positions that maybe would not be super comfortable for us. But last year at nauseum, we talked about Martez Ivy being a tackle, David Sharp potentially being out of the lineup, and TJ McCoy being at center. And TJ McCoy got his chance at center and did extremely well to the point where he's locked up that position. He's on some preseason watch list. Martez Ivy at left tackle is on watch lists. Uh, this is an offensive line that could, could, could do some damage. And, and essentially you have what amounts to four starters back. And then with the addition of a guy who's been tearing it up in camp and Brett Heggie. So this just feels like this should be one of the best strengths on the team, if not the best strength. And I know McElwain has done on multiple occasions. So, Alan, offensive line-wise, let's let's go one through five, five being a strength uh, as strong as it could be and one being as weak as it could be. What kind of number do you assign the offensive line? I'm going to go 3.5 because I'm not totally sold that this unit is going to be awesome. I'm hopeful I'm not all the way there yet. What about you? Yeah, we certainly haven't seen it on the field, but I, I I like this lineup. I like the way the players are being selected, which is so opposite of the Mike Summers era. Uh, I'm going to go with a, a four on this one. I feel like this will be one of our strengths. I, I expect them to perform well. I'm even going to say that I would be surprised if, I am, uh, if I'm going to be sitting here picking on the offensive line after this first week's game. That would be unfortunate for me. I, I expect them to be consistent this season. Let's move on to the wide receivers. Uh, this is maybe our strongest group in, in a decade or more for Florida. Indeed. Yeah, you've got Antonio Calle, who we'll get to maybe in a little bit, um, who won't play in the first game, obviously. Um, 
from some familiar faces with Brandon Powell and last year's big time freshman Tyree Cleveland. You're going to see a bunch of other guys play in this spot. You know, Dre Massey, uh, you know, Swain and Hammond from last year, uh, Daquan Green, who's a, a freshman people like. And then we'll see if maybe Kadarius Tony, the, you know, technically a quarterback might end up out here a little bit. Um, but the guy, you know, Callaway is the star of this group, uh, of course, if he can be on the field. But for me, I'm really looking for some big things from Freddie Swain. You know, Tyree Cleveland's the obvious choice here. But I think, you know, Swain is a guy I love the way he runs his routes. I think he's got some big time potential. And I think he's going to get a lot more snaps than he did last year. What about you? Yeah, some inside news, right, from the 15 minutes of practice anybody can watch. Uh is that Dre Massey, who now has just had his non-contact jersey lifted in the past week or so, is as expected yet again to be an explosive, important playmaker. Hopefully he makes it past the first play of this season. Uh, Cleveland, of course, has been a big-time over-the-top threat who struggled with some drops. And then a lot of good press for who you mentioned, Daquan Green. People are liking him as a really solid possession receiver, a guy that we haven't had in a while here at Florida. Big, strong, physical guy that can get those hitch routes, get those cross routes, and get those uh, those third down conversions. So it's going to be interesting to see how often we utilize him in those situations. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Kadarius Tony, they're just trying to find ways to get this guy in the field. We could see him in a Percy Harvin-like role uh, in sort of that hybrid uh, halfback slash slot positioning. So a lot to look forward to from this group in in game one. Super, super deep. Swain and Hammond are, are easily guys you can overlook uh, but they're extremely consistent route runners. They have gotten much better, according to all reports in the offseason. This is a group to watch in 2017. Uh, one to five, Alan, what are you giving the receivers? I'm going to go 4.5 here. I mean, this group has a chance to be super special. And, you know, the slight hesitation is, are we going to see as much of Antonio Callaway as we want to uh, for me? Yeah, I think if Callaway, I think you're absolutely right. If Callaway was a consistent player that stayed out of trouble and, and didn't have the reputation that he's sort of earning for himself now, this is this is a five based upon the hype, not production. Certainly the production has not been there, but a 4.5 feels right. There's a lot of promise. There's a ton of depth. This is an extremely and intelligently well-built receiving core. So hats off to McElwain and the coaching staff for putting this together. Uh, when you look at a college receiving core, this is what you want. There are tons of different styles of, of receivers on this core. And uh, it's fun just to look at them on the roster. And, and hopefully that translates into quarterbacks on our roster that can throw them the football, which of course will largely depend on how much production they have this season. But O-line receivers look very, very good thus far. Of course, a ton of returning starters, which helps that. Tight ends, another position where we have uh, all of our players back, uh, both starters back, plus a freshman that's 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 going to be solid. What are we looking at there, Alan? Some some, some familiar names: uh, Goolsby, Lewis, and then the guy you mentioned, Kim Moore Gamble, the freshman. Yeah, this group. You know, I was a little high on them last year. Their potential. I don't know that um, they're going to be stellar, but I think they'll be solid. Um, I think the receivers and the we'll get to them. The running backs are definitely outshining this group. But hopefully these will be guys that show up every week and, you know, do what they need to do in this offense. And I, I'm expecting some good production out of them. I don't know that anybody's really going to bust out and be awesome this year. I don't know. I think we might be past that with these guys. Uh, what about you? Yeah, it's an interesting narrative with 
with Goolsby. There's a there's a storyline where he could have a big season, and that storyline exists where you have Callaway, Cleveland, Dre Massey, and a host of other guys in the field, and and they get a lot of very favorable one on one matchups against outside linebackers, even middle linebackers. You could have a big season from a tight end in this offense. Uh, the second problem with that is you have to have a quarterback who can recognize that and use that. And like you said, Goolsby and Seante Lewis are not particularly explosive on their own. They're solid, they're consistent, but they're not guys that are going to wow you with their athleticism. Uh, Kimor Gamble's a bit more of that guy. He's been a little bit injured. He's obviously young. He's, he's a redshirt sort of candidate, maybe, even though McElwain says he'll probably be there for depth. So I don't think you're going to expect monstrous numbers out of these guys. In fact, what I'm going to look for the most is how well they block. Uh, Goolsby, I thought, struggled pretty significantly last year to block some of the more premier pass rushers. And in the Michigan segment, we're going to talk a little bit about what we're facing against that D-line. I want those two guys to reach the point where they're rock solid in their blocking assignments. And and that's going to be something I'm looking for in game one and throughout the season. I think if they contribute that way and catch a handful of passes each game, that's going to be a successful year for the the tight ends. So one to five, what do you got on them? I'm going to go three here. A three? All right. I like a four here for the tight ends, not because of the upside, but because I think that you have two guys who have a lot of experience. And in college football, that's an important thing. They're both returners. They've seen everything you need to see right now. And I'm counting on them to to sort of play consistent football, error-free, consistent football. And I think at the tight end position in college, that's that's a plus when you look at other teams' rosters. Let's hop over to the running backs. Uh, certainly also like the receivers, probably one of the most exciting running back situations we've had in a while. Who are our starters? That's always a murky thing, it appears, even though I think the fans kind of know who they like and who they who they want to like. Uh, who do you got starting? What does it look like? So the big name here is Jordan Scarlett. He's the guy that really broke through out of a rather crowded backfield last year, of course. And I mean, if you watch the guy immediately, his talent leaps off the screen. And I would expect him to get the bulk of the carries. I mean, maybe the coaching staff does what they did last year and split, you know, shares it, you know, fairly evenly, but I doubt it. Um, Of course, I think we all enjoyed the the Michael P. Ryan, you know, experience last year as a freshman, had some real flashes. Um, But a couple of freshmen, I think, you know, could show up. There's a guy making a ton of buzz in camp, Malik Davis. And I think he'll see the field this year, the way they're talking about it. I mean, they've shown that they're willing to play freshman. And I, this guy could be the next, you know, big thing. I, I, you know, he's got two really good guys in front of him, so I don't know if he'll get that much playing time. But I'd be surprised if he didn't play a little bit. Yeah, Malik Davis is a guy that is drawing comparisons to, to Percy Harvin uh, with his speed. So now you kind of have two guys who are drawing that in, Kadarius Tony and Malik Davis. I, I tend yes, to be high praise there. Yeah, I tend I to be the person that, that and I say this every year on the podcast, but I'm the person that's like, okay, show me something on the field and then I'll believe it. You know, practice and the game to James are two very different things. And I know that not everyone agrees with that statement, but I believe it's that way. So regardless, you want to have guys that have this hype and you want to have guys like Malik because he is entirely different than the rest of our running backs. And again, I think it's really wise to have a multitude of skill sets in your position groups. And just like we mentioned with receivers, the running backs have that as well. Uh, They're versatile. They're diversified. They can attack you from a lot of different angles with a lot of different styles. And so a lot of good things going on there. I would like to see Mark Thompson step his game up this season and stop the fumbles and be more of a power back in between the tackles. But uh, outside of that, this group can hit you in a lot of different ways. Does that mean they're going to be good? 
Eh, well, a lot of that depends on the offensive line and how well we pass the ball because last season we were dead last in the SEC and 113th, 113th out of 128 teams in the FBS at 128 yards per game. Just woeful, woeful performance from the running backs last year. And again, I do not put this on them. That is not their fault. Jordan Scarlett was carrying guys for most of his carries. But I yearn for a day where we turn on the television or watch the game in person and you see a hole that our running back runs through. Maybe not like the holes that Stanford was running through against Rice last Saturday. That's a little extreme. <laughs> but I will take even a sliver of a hole with some daylight to see what these guys can do in the open field. One to five. Allen on the running backs, what do you got? I'm going to go four. I mean, there's talent and enough in this backfield for it to be a five. But like you said, our our production last year was nowhere near where it needs to be for this team to be successful like it wants to be offensively. So four for me. Yeah, four feels right. Again, unless you're Barry Sanders, you're really dependent upon a good quarterback and a good offensive line. It doesn't matter who you are. Check out the NFL on Sundays to to make that statement true. Uh, but hopeful that that we can put these dominoes together. This running back core could could also be very special. And Jordan Scarlett is definitely special. So I'm hoping to see him be used more in a workhorse role. All right, now for the position group that really all the rest of these position groups hinge on. The most important player on the field in a football game, the quarterbacks. And yet again, this is year three of the podcast. We have yet an again. unresolved quarterback situation where I guess, thankfully, it helps us to bring you guys the analysis. We kind of tend to specialize in quarterback analysis at this point in time. But uh, it's murky. Nobody really knows. McElwain's not telling you. What, what does the quarterback room look like? Well, you've got three guys. Familiar names to listeners of the podcast, Felipe Franks, the redshirt freshman, Luke Del Rio, guy got some playing time last year, and the Notre Dame transfer, Malik Zaire. Wow. I mean, this has been the storyline of the offseason. We talked about it in the spring. You know, this is going to be what makes or breaks this team. Can somebody step into this role? And so far, no one has, or the coach, the coaches aren't telling us if somebody has. I mean, McIlwain keeps football secrets like he's in, you know, the secret service. So I, we're, we don't really know. No one gets to see all the practice from all appearances. It's a pretty close battle. Um, this is a really, really fascinating situation. Nobody knows. They're not telling. James, are you ready to make a prediction on who's going to start for the Gators? I've been ready to make that prediction, and we're going to delve more into that into the next segment, but I think it needs to be Felipe Franks for a variety of reasons. But let me walk back a second and talk about the quarterback room itself. So McIlwain will tell you, for the first time, our room is really good. And that's a quote. And essentially, he's saying, for the first time, this position group has a variety of guys that can play at the college level, at the SEC level, at a level that he thinks is proficient which is important for a multitude of reasons. One, it means that McIlwain himself believes the offense should be functional this season, regardless of who's trigger manning it. And number two, it means that the results in the field have been disastrous, and we really, really need that. Last year, we were ranked last in the SEC and 116th out of 128 in total yards on offense. This has to improve. Has to, has to, has to improve. Uh, if we look through each guy, I said on the podcast in the offseason that if Malik Zaire came, he would have about 40 days to learn the playbook. And that if he won the starting job, that would be a bad thing. I am still of that opinion. If he can beat out Felipe Franks, who's had a year and a half 
in the system under McIlwain's tutelage as a four-star recruit, uh, has everything you would want chosen by McIlwain. He can also beat out Del Rio, who's clearly a, a brainiac and a self-described leader of men. Uh, then I have an issue with that. You know, Malik Zaire's not very experienced. Yes, he's older. That would be a problem. So I would hate to see it be him. I don't think it's going to be him. I didn't see him that's the indication. And then you have what I call the Luke Del Rio problem. Uh, Luke Del Rio, to me, as we talked about last season, cannot make the deep throws. He cannot make the seam throws. He cannot make the important throws at this level, in my opinion. Um, I know he had injuries last year. I know he had an AC joint on his right shoulder. He had a labrum on his left shoulder. He had a torn MCL. He had a lot of problems. He's very smart. I think he can easily run the underneath stuff. But Jim McElwain's offense is not a West Coast offense. It just is not. It requires you to make vertical throws. I don't think he has the zip on the ball to do it. And I've maintained that all throughout last year. I know a lot of people agree. And then some people don't agree with that statement. But if Del Rio is named the starter for this game, it will cause problems for me. Uh, And we're going to talk about what the narrative could be for why you would choose a Del Rio against Michigan. Uh, But there's just a lot of complications with this quarterback room for me. And I think the choice needs to be Felipe Franks. I'm not at practice. But again, if the guy that's your four-star recruit, your prototypical size, your prototypical height has one and a half years in the system, and he cannot beat out a journeyman in Luke Del Rio and a guy that left Notre Dame, admittedly under Kaiser, who's now a starting quarterback at Cleveland, but left Notre Dame with very little playing time, I have a problem with how good our quarterback room actually is. So to reverse all this out and give the summation, if the quarterback room is actually really good, Felipe Franks needs to be the best quarterback in the room. That's what makes it really good. Then it's supplemented by two backups who are very solid in Malik Zaire and Luke Del Rio, and everything falls into place with the guy holding the clipboard and Kyle Trask who can also play. That makes the room really good. If you flip that script around and you change that order, I think the room becomes much less good. Much, much less good. I have a hard time finding a narrative that's impressive to me. So it's going to be really interesting yet again this season with what happens, especially since McElwain is pulling his sort of typical quarterback shenanigans. You know, I'm just always reminded of the tree on Harris Wilgler situation going into that season. Uh, I mean, who knows what's going to happen this week? And, and we're going to address that again in the Michigan segment of the podcast, tactically, what should be done? What do we think is the right strategy? Looking at the pieces that we have. So this is sort of a long-winded piece in the quarterbacks, but there's no way to answer it. I hope it's Felipe Frank starting on Saturday. I hope he gets the majority of the playing time. I hope that we do not rotate quarterbacks. And I think then... And only then will we give ourselves a fair shot of having a really good room. Uh, But we'll talk about that more in the Michigan pod. Alan, I know I just threw a ton of stuff at uh, you and the listeners there. What are your thoughts on that and what's your ranking? I mean, there's so much uncertainty surrounding the position still. Even with it being the strongest room it's been in a while, which I agree with, I can't give the position more than a three until I see somebody excelling at the position back there. What about you? Yeah, three is exactly right. Average, probably really it should be a two or maybe even a one if you look at past performance. But just with Indeed. expectation coming into the season, a, a three is accurate. You got a redshirt freshman who's a four-star. You got a journeyman. You got a guy that was also a four-star that couldn't win a job at Notre Dame and now transferred and had not a lot of time in the program. And you got Kyle Trask, who's an unheralded kind of guy. Uh, I have three. Three is right on the money. All right. The offense as a whole, let's talk about that for a second. Your confidence level, one to five. Three. And that's entirely because of the question mark that is the quarterback position. And and to illustrate how interesting this is, this offense returns everyone except for David Sharp. 
and Austin Appleby. Every single starter returns. And like you said, David Sharp being gone, in my opinion, is a win for the team in the offensive line, even though he's you know applying his trade in the NFL. And our quarterback situation, in my opinion, is improved, at least on paper. So it's really weird for me to say a three, but there's no data. And you heard me say that a lot on this show. It's it's easy to feel hopeful. I open the show with that. I feel great. I feel really happy. I think good things can happen. But we're going to have to have some proof before I can give it a rating that assesses it as so. I don't want to have any sort of overconfidence bias because, hey, James is excited and sees things he likes. It's going to have to happen on the field. Uh, exactly. And, I mean, we three. gave each of these position groups fours, four and a half, you know, and I have to agree with you. I was going to say three and a half for the offense. That's how important this position is. And if we don't get, you know, I don't know, excellent play might not be the right word, but if we don't get, you know, really competent play out of the quarterback, the offense is going to sink. All right, let's jump over to the defense, James. Why don't you walk us through that? Let's start with the defensive line. Uh, this could be a position of strength, even though we lost Caleb Brantley, Joey Ivy, and Brian Cox. A lot of production, a lot of important players there. Uh, this this position grouping, though, could be could be interesting, could be fun to watch. Starters right now look like Zuniga and CC Jefferson as your defensive ends, and then Taven Bryan and probably Kari Clark, although there could be a combination of some other guys in there, uh, Jordan Sherritt, and of course the rotate. But it looks like those four guys are going to be going to be playing. Uh, Taven Bryan, who was often highlighted last season, especially by me, as going through the gap, but also losing his gap responsibility. Uh, it has been earning rave, rave, rave reviews in camp. He's probably the most talked about defensive player in camp. Uh, it's essentially unblockable is sort of what's coming out of that. And, and the film would indicate as such. We're going to talk about why Taven Bryant could have a huge season this year. And some of that has to do with Randy Shannon's scheme and how they play. Uh, but that's that's what the defensive line looks like. We have a lot of young guys been behind them. You might recall we didn't take very many defensive tackles. So we're possibly thin at this position. Uh, which is is not necessarily ideal, but there are some guys that can play. There's a lot of experience. A lot of guys have logged a lot of playing time. Alan, what are your thoughts on the D-line? Yeah, despite the fact that we're replacing three starters, all these guys got a ton of playing time because of injuries last year. I mean, there's star power at each of these slots. I don't know if Kari Clark's the star, but he's a guy who played a lot and as a big you know, nose tackle type of guy. I think he fills that role fairly well. I mean, Taven Bryan, is, you're right, is the guy who's getting all this buzz, but I think we'd be remiss if we left out you know, highlighting CC Jefferson. I mean, he's legitimately probably the star of this defense, the most established guy in the front seven, certainly. Uh, and then our guy, Jabari Zuniga, who, you know, maybe has the most like sack potential. So I love this group. Um, he has some interesting guys. Antonius Clayton, the guy who was a five star recruit who didn't play at all last year, but has maybe started to put him together. The Bam Bam twins or Bam Bam brothers, you know, Conliffe and Slayton, the two freshman defensive tackles. There's a lot of interesting guys in this unit. Um, yeah, a little thin if you don't like to include freshmen on your depth chart, but um, so a really interesting mix of guys and some, you know, potential stars in this group. Yeah, I'm excited about this group. I'm going to give them a four out of five with uh, with possible and significant upside. 
it, this this is a, a versatile group and probably most exciting, especially for me and the way Randy Shannon wants to play defense is the size that we have in the tackle positions. I mean, Slayton is a monster. 6'4", 358. And that's on purpose. So you can think of Terrence Cody, Alabama. And again, we're going to talk about why we want guys like that in our defense now, which is which is a different. This is different. This is a different style. Uh, Jeff Collins, he would have employed similar scenarios, but Randy Shannon absolutely wants a ginormous set of tackles or more importantly, a nose tackle. And then, of course, the nose tackle is going to be the guy that sits in the middle of your defensive line and, and goes opposite the center uh, and and the guard. And so I'm excited about what these guys can do. I think they have a lot of potential to rush the passer. We, we didn't produce a lot last year with our defensive line sack wise and pressure wise. It was a little bit disappointing from a, from a stats perspective. Uh, but this year, this, if they stay healthy, this could be a really, really surprisingly good line. Cause I'm not sure people around the country are aware of what kind of potential talent we have on this line right now. It's a little bit of a sleeper line. I think if you're finding yourself living in a state that's not Florida. Yeah, I would agree. I would say I was going to give them a three and a half. I'm, there's a chance that these guys don't come through. I mean, there's so much potential, but it has a little boom or bust feel to it. And if we have some injuries along here, it could get pretty iffy, especially in stopping the run. Let's talk about linebackers. Of course, my favorite player on the entire roster is on the linebacking core. Uh, but <laughs> all of our starters are gone. No starters left. We're starting a bunch of new guys, but there's a lot of experience because all of our starters got injured at some point in time last heard year. All these guys before. So these are not guys that are going to be new to you if you followed the team last year, uh, which is which is good. A lot of that experience that we got last year was actually really kind of ideal. Who are our starters going to be on the linebacking core, Allen? Well, you recognize him, David Reese, Kylan Johnson, if he's healthy, and your boy, Voshan Joseph. Also, you'll see a lot of Jeremiah Moon. Um, I think this year, and he's an interesting guy who can do some different things. And that's pretty much it. So a really scary unit for this team. There's some freshmen, some of whom are suspended for the opener. Um, there's our boy, um, the walk-on turned, now scholarship player. Um, I'm blanking on his name, Christian, Christian Garcia. Garcia. Uh-huh. Yes, thank you. He's a guy I think he'll play this year. He's a nice fill-in guy. But this is really concerning because Kylan Johnson has missed some time. David Reese has missed some time. Moon missed all of last year. If these guys stay healthy, I'm confident that they'll do an excellent job. But if there's one position that we cannot afford injuries at, it is linebacker. And so that makes me pretty nervous. Yeah, this is this is like playing fantasy football where it kind of feels like you're standing outside and everyone's celebrating some sort of event and shooting bullets into the air and you're just hoping they don't hit you on the way down. Uh, <laughs> but it, but inevitably a lot of bullets hit you and <laughs> it never feels it just doesn't feel good. It, there's not enough depth here. We we totally have whiffed on recruiting when it comes to linebacking depth. We're aware of it, but we missed the boat here. So these guys are all good. I feel really good about how these guys all play. Reese, Johnson, Joseph, and Moon. The way Randy Shannon wants to use them, I like it. I'm all in on it. I believe in it. But it doesn't take much for a linebacker to get injured. And uh, if we're lucky, if we have the low side of variance and we experience you know, positive skewness, so to speak, if you like statistics, then great for us. We're going to have a really nice year with our linebackers. If we don't and we have a situation like last year, you're talking about having three freshmen start. 
they are all three-star and below guys. And, and in reality, they're athletes. And we're also going to talk about why Randy Shannon recruits sort of unheralded linebackers. But we don't really have another middle linebacker. And that may be the biggest problem. David Reese is by far the best candidate for middle linebacker. In fact, he's fantastic. He draws rave reviews. But if he were to go down, we don't really have another captain of the defense. Very There's bad. not another guy that fits Very that. Bad. And that's and that's the thing that worries me the most, is that is an extremely important position on defense, especially on a defense that has lost so many starters. You need a guy in the middle that can line you up correctly and get you in and out of plays and... Uh, it's it's nerve-wracking, but I really like the guys that are projected as our starters. I love our ones. I love our ones in the linebacking crew. I think they can make a lot of noise. I don't love the position group as a whole because it has holes. So what do you give this out yeah. of one to five? Gosh, so this is if this is a confidence level, I'm going to have to say like two and a half because we could get to the end of the year and being like, who are we playing at linebacker? Like you'd be playing at linebacker or something. I don't know. I mean, it gets really, really thin really, really quick. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I also I'm also going to go two and a half, and that's not the starter. If I was just doing the starters, I'd probably give it a four with upside. Uh, I feel that good about it, but you have to look at the whole position group and depth matters. Depth is what wins in college football, especially in the SEC, and we are we are thin here. So two and a half um, on the linebackers. Right, let's look at the secondary. We're going to look at both the corners and the safeties. We have lost all of our starters from last year, minus if you count the nickel. <laughs> in this case, Duke Dawson. And of course, the Marcel Harris injury, which is truly, truly traumatic. Brutal. Such a consistent producer, a guy that I really, really liked as the bedrock of that backfield. And he is gone. So if you're counting now, we have nine new starters on defense this season. Nine new starters as we head into this Michigan game. Uh, and the secondary, much like the linebackers, they have their own questions, maybe in different ways. Who do you think, and we don't know this for sure yet, but who do you think is going to project as our starters in the uh, secondary? Well, this is probably the biggest question mark in the starting lineup other than the quarterback. Uh, Duke Dawson seems to have solidified one corner spot. Nick Washington, if he's healthy, will play the other will play one safety spot. And then that's kind of up in the air. Chauncey Gardner, maybe our most talented guy in the secondary. You know, he had a big bowl game. He's gonna play somewhere. Safety, corner, maybe wherever we're wherever's our biggest need. A lot of freshmen. You're going to see a lot of freshmen back there. So, you know, uh, take that for what it's worth. Uh, Marco Wilson, you recognize that name? Quincy's little brother, I think will play. He's probably the first guy in the nickel. Um, a guy that's making waves, Sean Davis at safety. I mean, the everything I read mentions him. But, you know, as we said, that's practice. There's a lot of guys back here who probably see playing time. Um, Joseph Puto, a guy who's a Juco guy from last year, or, you know, he's been running with the ones, but people aren't sure if he's the coach is actually going to run him out there when it's game time. So I don't know what to think. I mean, this Marcel Harris injury kills us because he was our bedrock guy back there, the only guy with real experience, you know, in the spot that he's going to be playing, and he's gone. So. I don't know. This group could be amazing and it could be just a sieve where they're getting burnt to toast every week. And I have no idea what to think. Yeah. And the word on the street is that this is maybe the, the most athletic secondary we've had. 
and let that settle in for a second because we've had some really good secondaries, but there are some people who think this is actually the most athletic group of guys that we have, certainly the least experienced group of guys that we've had in a long time. And this illustrates like what we talked about the linebackers. When you lost one guy, Marcel Harris, who would have been the middle linebacker, if you will, of the secondary, things are in chaos. Now that allows you, that forces you to play Chauncey Gardner at safety if you want to go for safety, uh, so to speak, as opposed to putting him at corner. Uh, it forces you to put a guy like Putu as a starting corner uh, and maybe keeping you know, Gardner there, you just lose a lot of your flexibility. So, you know, a lot of people think the projected lineup, like you mentioned, is Dawson at corner, Putu at corner, Gardner at safety, Nick Washington at safety. I think ideally, if the coaches feel really comfortable with Sean Davis at safety, uh, then they might slide Gardner down into the corner spot. But me personally, I, I think I'd like to see Gardner at safety. I have my own reasons for that, especially in college football. Uh, as to why I think that's important. But it's going to be interesting to see what this looks like on Saturday. I kind of think it's going to be a little bit of an audition. Uh, it seems like yes. Marco Wilson has earned the nickel spot. That seems like he's done a great job in camp and he's got that down. But this is going to be a lot of different guys getting a chance to prove themselves in the secondary. Uh, it's going to be fun slash horrifying to watch, depending on which angle you're looking at. And Alan, one to five, what do you give the secondary? Oh, man. This is again a hard. I'm gonna have to go two and a half again. I mean, this group, like you said, is incredibly talented, especially the freshmen. And these guys, you know, maybe the guys at the end of the year who are freshmen are playing are not the guys we think are playing right now. That could all change. But with so many people in new positions, I mean, I think every time the ball, if you're watching on TV, goes up in the air, everyone's gonna hold their breath. Like, what's gonna happen on the other side of that? Is someone running wide open down the field? So yeah, another. You know, like linebacker, you're afraid of depth. This is like a total unknown. Yeah, this is the we have depth here. So this we have depth. We have bodies we can throw in that are athletic, recruited, and played the position. But this uh, two and a half, two, three. I mean, anywhere in that range seems good, depending on how you're feeling about it. But I, I'm going to say a, a two and a half with you. And I know a lot of people on this podcast think, "Hey, James, you and Alan like agree on everything." Well, it's either A, because we're just great analysts, or B, because every year it seems like we just, <laughs> I don't know, what's your ranking for that if you're a listener, right? I mean, can you really say higher than a three? I don't think so. You're just sort of hoping at that scenario. So two and a half feels right. It's unproven. It has talent. It has upside. Secondaries in college football, a lot of times win and lose you football games. Uh, they blow a coverage at a critical time. And and they're really important in my opinion, which is why I mentioned putting Chauncey Gardner at safety. I think corners can do less damage uh, with a mental error than a safety can. And in college football, I think safeties actually are very, very important into keeping the lid on the huge place. And I think limiting big plays is one of the most important things the defense can do. So we'll see what the coaches decide to do, but this is going to be a most interesting group. So that brings us to looking at the defense as a whole, Alan. Uh, we have nine new starters, a lot of talent, uh, some holes, not a perfect amount of depth. What do you give the defense? It's interesting because I, on one hand, I think this could be an, a very solid defense, you know, maybe not as dominant as it's been in the last few years, but again, it could be just a burning barn of flames and agony. Um, I'm going to have to say, man, this is tough. I think I'll say three and a half. I'm just hedging a little bit. Uh, it could be a one. It could be a five. Honestly, the, Everything is on the table with this group. It really is. I, I like a, 
I like a two and a half here because they're unproven, but here's my meta narrative on both the offense and the defense. I'm buying them. I'm buying them. So they're stocks that are low because they haven't performed and I don't have a track record on them, but I'm absolutely bullish on them. I, I think they're going to perform. I think they're going to be good. I have good expectations for them, but if I have to score them right now, based upon looking at the roster, looking at the diversification of players, the depth behind them, the scenarios that could go wrong, and the scenarios that could go right, that seems like the right score. And to sort of encapsulate those two thoughts, if we ran a simulation where we took this exact roster and put it through a thousand different football seasons, you'd have a certain amount where guys were injured and were out and it was really bad. You'd have a certain amount where everything went right and you you maxed out your season and you won. You have a bunch of stuff in between. And there's a lot of variables to put into that simulation that allows this team to have a lot of variance. And therefore, it's just hard to assign them better scores. But I am optimistic that we will experience the better side of that range, uh, that we will come out on a better than average expectation of what this roster can do. So it's a positive feeling, even if the scores I'm assigning it tend to be more mundane. I don't know if that sort of echoes yeah, similar to you, Alan. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I mean, if you're following the overall narrative arc of this program, the one that you want to buy into is the Urban Meyer arc, where 2007 was a transition year. Offense really took steps forward. The defense was really young, um, really talented, but also really young. and gave up a ton of points. And that's what seems to be on this year defensively. Well, we've yet to see if the offense can score any points, but you'd hope that everything is building towards, you know, 2018. So this team, you know, has a lot of, of that kind of feel to it where you don't maybe know what to expect, even from game to game. And then, of course, maybe the strongest part of our team, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to give it a five, our special teams, at least our specialists, um, Johnny Townsend and the most famous man in all of Florida football, our kicker. Those guys are incredible, and I think we're going to count on them a lot this year. Yeah, the chance of Eddie raining down from the stands, Eddie Pinheiro, even if he misses a kick, like it's it's kind of just hysterical. But that's what YouTube can can do for you in the modern era. But uh, yeah, we are well well suited here. Johnny Townsend continues to be the best punter in college football. Eddie Pinheiro has the best leg in college football. Uh, but if you if you like to watch hard knocks like me. There's a guy named Robert Aguayo who was the most accurate kicker in the history of college football for the school that everyone Second hates. Second round draft pick, Florida State, insane. and he is he is you know he was cut from the Bucks and he's now on the Bears, I believe, trying to earn a spot there. But kicking is brutal; it's uh, just mentally challenging and a difficult grind. And Eddie has proven to be tough. He proved that last year. That was one of our big preseason questions: is he is a tough guy mentally? But you really never know. So hopefully we get to experience Eddie getting better and nailing some big kicks, but you just don't know. Uh, but yeah, at this Mack point in time, kick a 70 yarder. Yeah. Right. Like at this that. point in time, definitely a five. It's, it's a super strength of the team. Uh, we, we will see Callaway on punt return should be really strong. Curious to see who they rolled as a kick returner. I think we've had some weakness there on kickoff returns. Uh, we seem to address it towards the end of last year. I'm curious to see who they're going to line up there. They have a lot of options this year. Uh, we're getting more explosive with our playmakers. So that will be a fun one to watch as well. All right, let's hop into one of my favorite segments, the prediction segment, because it's totally ridiculous and useless because who the heck knows what's going on. But it is a lot of fun to talk about some of these things. And this year, 
this year, I think is a really interesting year to do it because some of these things are actually achievable uh, and I'm kind of hopeful towards them. And it'll be really, really cool if they happened. So let's start, Alan, with the breakout players. Who are your breakout players uh, for this for this season? This is funny. I mean, uh, last year I picked Luke Del Rio, so I was totally right about that. That's why I was laughing before. And I picked Trey Massey, uh, who, yes, who went out in the first play. So <laughs> hence the laughter on the onset of this. So this is if you're talking about a breakout player, this is a guy who's not an established player, so that would rule out some guys. But you're this is a guy who you think is going to take it to another level, even even if it's a guy who's played some. So this for, for me is going to be Tyree Cleveland. If this offense, if the quarterback play is good. I think this guy could be a monster. So I'm I'm hopeful that that's the way this thing ends up. So that's my guy on offense. What about you? I have to stick with Voshan Joseph. Uh, he's my guy. I'm going to ride that guy. Uh, he He's an explosive hitter. He's a freaky athlete. He could be out of position at multiple occasions, but I'm okay with that. You know, the guy's going to get downhill fast. I think in Randy Shannon's system, where these guys have a simplified role and a certain gap to hit, it is tailor-made for this guy, uh, you know, I was on him last year. He, he, he practically knocked out LSU with one single blow on the goal line. I am just looking forward to what this guy can do. Because if you're a fan of this yes. podcast, you've heard of him. But if you're a fan of the Gators, he's definitely under the radar. He only played a handful of snaps last year. So hopefully I did not just put the the curse on Voshan Joseph because that would make me really sad. But uh, I am looking forward to seeing what this guy can do this season. He's going to be my breakout player for 2017. All right, give me a, give me a guy on offense. I'm going to stick with Trey Massey. I mean, <laughs> I think he's a guy we need. Uh, he he's he's a better version of Brandon Powell. By the way, Brandon Powell is sort of like the forgotten man, right? Yes. Like under Will Greer, it's like, oh my gosh, this Brandon Powell guy is uncoverable. Can't wait to use him. And then last year, it's like, does Brandon Powell even matter? So I'm kind of hoping to see the reemergence of Brandon Powell as well, and the reemergence of a slot receiver. Uh, doing damage to opponents' defenses. I'm looking forward to all of those things. And I think Dre Massey is going to be well, well suited to take some of these underneath crossing routes the distance. So I'm looking for him to break out this year for real and not instead break off the roster on the IR. I'm tempted to say Taven Bryan on defense. We've talked about him a lot. I'm just going to go back to our guy, Jabari Zuniga. That's the guy I want to see. If we could produce an elite edge rusher, this defense goes to a whole nother level of its you know, capabilities. So hoping that that's going to be our guy. CC Jefferson, I think will be superb in all the little things he does, but maybe uh, uh, just a elite speed edge rusher off the other side. Zuniga. Let's look at some over-unders points per game on offense this season. We're going to set it at a really low bar last year. It was a woeful 24 points per game woeful that's horrible just to give you context that's that's bad that's you know like a hundredth so let's set it at 28 points a game maybe that's 50th or 60th right 28 points a game not a high bar here you taking the over or the under man you put it (laughs) right where you should have um i'm gonna go over like i said i'm bullish that whoever wins this quarterback battle is is gonna be you know, at least good enough to lead us to somewhere close to 30 points a game. What about you? Yeah, I'm also going to take the over. I took the over last year, which was great. Nice pick me, right? That was really awesome. Would we be better than 60th on offense? No, that was way wrong. But this year, I think that we will be better than 60th on offense. Uh, we should be. 
with all the returning starters that we have. And if McIlwain is a good quarterback coach, which most people seem to think he is, that should be achievable. So I'm going over. I'm going above 28 points a game by the end of the year. Number of quarterbacks who play at least four quarters of total playing time. Yes, that's the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves here at this program. Uh, Over, under on that one, I'm going to say, I'm going to put that at two. Two quarterbacks that play at least four quarters of total playing time. You taking the over, you taking the under? Oh, man. You're really sticking it to me with these over-unders. I'm going to go under. I think we'll see Kadarius Toney. I don't think that'll add up enough to, you know, over four quarters. And I'm hoping one guy's going to take the vast majority of snaps and maybe he's out for a play or two for injury. I'm going to take a push. Yeah, I'm going to push this one. I'm going to say that two is the right number. I think that two guys are going to play. A you can't push. You got to go over or under. I'm not taking the bet. It's a, <laughs> it's a push. And if I had to take the bet, over seems crazy. It, that, that's an injury-laden season. But under is one guy. I you know. I take the under if I had to take it, but I'm going to take a push. I think two is the right number. I think two is what it's going to be for what that's worth. <laughs> All right, let me let me do this next one for you. Let me put you on the spot here. All right, our next one is the number of sacks by just one single player over the course of the season. I'm going to set that number at seven and a half. That's a good number. That's a really good number because I was thinking, you know, Zuniga came flying out of the gate last year. He was just killing it. And then he kind of came back down to earth. Uh Whew. It would be great to have a guy who got more than seven and a half sacks. That means the unit probably gets somewhere around maybe nineteen or twenty, maybe even more. And that'd be that'd be very high level. I'm gonna I'm gonna take an optimistic over here, assuming guys are healthy, and a lot of this is gonna have to do with how Randy Shannon plays. The defensive ends will be asked to do things differently than they were asked under Jeff Collins. And look, Jeff Collins was very effective. I think we all know that I was a fan of a lot of what we did under Jeff. I'm gonna take the I'm gonna take the over on that. I'm gonna take more than seven and a half. How about you? I'm gonna go under. Unfortunately, if I have to place a bet, that's wise. That's a wiser bet than mine is. I'm definitely against the odds there. Okay, so our defense last year by most metrics, and it has been for several years running. You know, overall, if you look at all the stats, essentially a top ten unit. Let me put the over under. I'm gonna back it up just a little bit. Is this is this Defensive ranking at the end of the season, is it a, a top 12 unit over or under? I'm going to take the under on that one. And that's not going to be a disappointment. Certainly you do. Meaning dis- under, meaning it's ranked outside the top 12. Outside, yes. Good question. That's correct. Yeah, ranked outside the top 12. I think that if you ask me, will we be ranked out of the top 25? Uh, then then I would I would go with the, the I'm going to get underneath that or over that. I don't know. I have backwards this whole, this whole piece here. But... I'd like to see us finish between 20 and 25 on defense. I think that'd be successful for the year. If we finish in the top 12, that would be unbelievable to me. I would I would be extremely impressed with that, especially given the lack of depth and the newcomers we have on this unit. So I'm going to I'm going to say we're going to finish outside the top 12. How about you? Yeah, I'm going to go under to use your terminology. I I would think anything over 20 feels like this bad stuff's happening with the amount of talent that's on this team. That means we probably have some injuries. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to go way under, though. All right. This last two will be fun. We're going to talk about the possibility of the Gators. I know this is going to sound crazy. Is I'll say over or under 1,000 rushing yards for our leader, Gusher. 
I assume this is going to be Jordan Scarlett if he's healthy. This is over, and this is entirely on him being healthy and getting the proper amount of carries. But in my opinion, he should reach this number. We should have a 1,000-yard rusher on the team this season. We have the right offensive line to do it. I think we have the right scheme to do it. Uh, and a lot of this, of course, has to do with health. I mean, that's a that's a main reason why there's not that many guys that rush more than a thousand yards in college football. Uh, they get injured and they miss several games. So I'm going to take the over, though. I, I feel like this is a good year to do it. It's as good as yours. I need to do it. I like the way things are lining up. What about you? I'm going to go under. Uh, that's a lot of yards, and you have to get a lot of carries. And I don't know that they're going to give him the amount of carries that he wants to. There's a lot of guys on this team I think that can handle the ball, and I don't know that I want him getting that many carries. I know it's better to have a workhorse running back, a guy who you know gets a rhythm, but I also don't want to give the ball to somebody 27 times a game. I mean, there's, there's no reason to put that kind of wear and tear on a guy when you have as much talent in the backfield as we do. Yeah, and that's the committee approach. It hurts a lot of that nowadays as well. But I think if he can get maybe 15 carries a game, some of the fluff competition that we have, maybe we get there. We're going to find out. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. How about a 1,000-yard receiver? Will our leading receiver yeah, eclipse a thousand yards? I, I'm going to go way under this. I mean, Callaway hasn't really even come close to this, and he's missed some time. And of course, our quarterback play hasn't been anywhere near supporting that kind of number, but that feels like a pipe dream. If that happens, oh man, that would just be incredible because that means this offense is clicking. So I'm going way under. It is extremely hard to get more than a thousand yards as a receiver in college football. If you go pull up the stats on this, you will be amazed at how difficult it is to actually achieve this. Uh, you think of a, there's a, there's just a lot of great receivers in college football that went onto the NFL to be absolute studs, and they did not have thousand yard receiving seasons in college football. If I change this number to 650 yards, Alan, do you take the over or the under? I think I'll take the over, and that, yeah. that's assuming that's Callaway, and that's assuming we we get him the ball like we're planning on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the fact that we're even asking this question, though, is kind of fun because it shows the amount of talent we have a receiver. Oh, it's great. It's great to even ask this question. And, and the amount of talent that we have a receiver maybe what almost hinders this. You know, I think a lot of times the 1,000-yard guys are where it's like you've got a guy that's incredible and you've got two guys that aren't nearly as good as him and you force feed that guy. And that's not our situation. But regardless, uh, the production this year should should be there if the quarterback play is competent for the receivers. All right, let's look at a, at a macro picture now on the season. So we zoomed in on the players, looked at the personnel, we gave you rankings, we looked at some of these over-under numbers, what could happen statistically. Let's talk about an, an important narrative for what we need to see out of this team this season and what we need to see out of McIlwain for 2017. If we stand at the end of the season and we look back on it, what is success and what is not success? This is a really great question. And I don't know. I want, I have to see the team improve offensively. Defensively, I think if we take a step back, you know, even like several steps back, that's very understandable. But McElwain, as an offensive coach, as he's built, you know, he's got enough quarterback talent, as we talked about, to make this happen. Whoever wins that job, somebody should be able to put this team, you know, I don't know, over the top offensively, but at least into like, you know, not ranked a hundredth offensively. And yeah, that's what I want to see. And we've been having a discussion um, with some of my friends about style versus record. Would you rather us win a games and score 45 points a game 
or would you rather go 10 to two with a very pedestrian offense, maybe a little better than what we've had? Dan, that, what would you choose in that scenario? Style, style all day. I talk a lot about style because I think style is what actually leads to a more accurate indication of your future ceiling. Now there's a lot of caveats there. You know, if those two games you lost are because your coach grossly mismanaged tactical situations, I change that opinion. But assuming you win eight games, the coaching is perfect, the tactical moves are perfect, you wouldn't change the way things are being executed style all day long. Uh, so that's kind of how I'm equating that, right? You're sort of optimizing your your 10 and 2 team where their offense is just that's what it is, and you're optimizing your style team where everything is what it is, and you just wind up with a different record. Style is what is going to create momentum for the program. It's what's going to create excitement for the fans. And most importantly, I think it's actually what shows you the progress. A lot of times the records can lie to you. And I'll give you the case of Nebraska two years ago. Nebraska lost a bunch of games just by the narrowest of margins. And if you looked at the style, you would have said, hey, that Nebraska team is probably going to be pretty good. And in fact, last year they were very good. Uh, Texas had a similar situation last year. They lost a bunch of games by a close margin. A lot of people think Texas this year is going to take a big leap forward. So style has a lot to do with it. I would love to see this year's team be offensive in their identity. That would be a win for the program, in my opinion, and a win for McIlwain. The defense should always be there at an SEC program like ours, but we need to have a discernible style, and that style needs to play itself out. I would take two extra losses to have an offense that's top 30 in the country this season. I would make that trade. How about you? I think I would too. And that's just for the ascent of the program because I, I see the pieces in place for this defense to return to being very good the next year you know maybe still a little young in certain spots but if the offense continues to sputter with this much talent and experience that just that's a bad look it's a sends a bad message to recruits and a lot of your momentum that you've gained all the stuff that we talk about in the top half of the program i think starts to dwindle and fade really quickly all right james let me ask you let me say floor and ceiling we're going to do a game by game schedule pick them at the end but what do you think is the floor for this team and what's the ceiling quickly well if jt raymond a fan and crazy optimist we've had on the show before we're here right now he would tell you that the floor is 10 wins let, <laughs> let that let that settle in for a second the floor is 10 wins that's just that's just absurd. But the floor the floor for me, looking at our schedule, favorable with regards to the home games we play, challenging with regards to the teams that we play. I think our floor is is seven games, and that's going to be I want to say eight is our floor realistically, but I can still imagine a scenario where our linebackers go out, our quarterbacks underperform, uh, and and we we find ourselves losing a few really close fought games. Uh, so seven, but seven even feels a bit low to me. The ceiling on this team, I think this team has a lot of upside potential. I, I think if you're counting a bowl game win, I think the ceiling on this team is is 11 wins. I, I'm not sure they could get to 12, given the question marks that we have, some of the youth that we have. But if the offense carries the day and we're able to score in the 30s, uh, this team could win 11, maybe 12 games. So I'm going to go seven and then a, a 11 with a chance to surprise on the upside for my floor ceiling. What do you got? Yeah, I'm, I'm close to you on that. Um, I think I'm a little lower in my variance. So I, I would say seven is certainly achievable by this team. Uh, I don't know if achievable is the right word. Um, and I would say 10 is probably my max. I mean, I guess if you're pushing me to say the absolute ceiling and everything goes perfectly, certainly 
11 or 12 is you know there but i just don't i think it's such a remote possibility that i'd say 10 is our realistic ceiling well this is going to do it for the first half of this podcast Uh, we're going to turn our attention to a discussion with shane matthews to start breaking down the quarterback play and specifically what this looks like in the michigan game and we're going to spend the second half of this podcast tactically and strategically discussing what do we need to do to win against michigan what is Michigan running on offense and defense? What are we running on defense? Because that's going to be new with Randy Shannon. We'll get you primed and ready for this showdown on Saturday so that by the time you head into it, you are well aware of just exactly what is going to happen on the gridiron. We are joined now by Shane Matthews, Gator great and current host of the Ackerman and Matthews show, which you can catch on WRUF ESPN Gainesville from 10 to 2 uh, every single day. Uh, Shane. Let's just jump right into the quarterback battle. That's the the thing on most of our minds. I know that you just told me that you've been to one practice, so it's not like you're there like the coaches are, and we certainly don't expect you to be that way. But what do you think the coaches are looking for? What would you be looking for in this, what has turned into be a prolonged quarterback battle? Well, what you look for in a quarterback is a guy who's going to be efficient and, uh, you know, running the offense and consistency. You know, I don't need a guy that makes a, a great play and then the next six or seven plays makes bad throws. You need a guy that's consistent throughout the process. And I'm sure that's what Coach McElwain and Nussmeyer, they've been doing, trying to evaluate these guys throughout uh, camp leading up to this, you know, the opener against Michigan. And, you know, when it comes down to quarterback play and as a play caller, you want to find a guy that you trust that can go out and execute what's called. So, you know, right now they say they don't know who's going to play. I think they personally, I think they know who they want to play. I think they want to play Philippi Franks. I think that's the guy they want to, you know, put in there first and hopefully he'll go and play well and it can go to the distance. Now, I know that last time we spoke, uh, you, you thought well enough of Luke Del Rio. Of course, he's a very cerebral guy, can make a lot of the underneath throws. Is your opinion on him still that he can, he can be better than maybe what we saw in an injury plagued season last season? Yeah, I think so. I think he, you know, what he did was uh, he played well until, until he was injured. And, uh, you know, he may not be the most physically gifted guy, but uh, he can run the offense. So I think he's a guy that, you know, I don't feel like they will start just because, uh, you know, he's kind of a veteran, been around the game. He's a guy that can come off the bench if things aren't going well. But, um, you know, all three of those guys that are vying for the position have different skill sets. But I feel like, you know, with Filippi having a year under his belt, being redshirted, uh, he has the most talent. Now that means anything because I see so many talented guys that never never pan out. But I feel like uh, you know that's who they want to play. I feel like that's who I would probably start and see what happens. Now you yourself are a coach, obviously here at a local Gainesville school. If you were heading into this Michigan game and let's say that you started Franks, what is your mindset? Is it if he has a couple of bad series, I think about making a change because I want to win the game, or? Or are you personally more of the mentality where it's, this is my guy, he's going to have to do something pretty ridiculous to play himself out of the role? Well, I think what you have to do is you kind of have to see how the game is going, see what the score is. You know, you you, you want to go in there and let him know, look, you're my guy. You know, you make a couple bad throws, a couple bad reads, we're not going to pull you. But he just can't make big, bad mistakes. And, and, Honestly, what I would do is I'd come and air it out the first couple of series. You know, deep balls, because they're safer than throwing short, and just let him relax. And maybe you hit a couple of them. 
But, you know, I go in there and say, hey, Felipe, you're, you're my guy. We believe in you. Let's go win a football game and just see how, it, you know, things go for the first quarter or so. If you had to look into the future here this season, what do you think the odds are that whoever starts this game on Saturday remains the quarterback the entire season? Good chance, not so good chance? Uh, that's that's a great question. I think everyone wants their starting quarterback to go the distance, but we know nowadays that doesn't really happen, and we don't have an established guy. But that doesn't mean this whoever starts against Michigan can't go out and light it up and uh, even if they don't light it up, play well enough to keep the job. Um, I think throughout the course of the game, the year, you know, there's always guys getting dinged up. So I'm sure all three of them will play sometime throughout the course of the year. But me as a, a coach, I, I want the guy that I think can be our guy go the distance. So speaking of a guy that wants to be the guy, Malik Zaire, how hard is it to come into a new playbook, a new offense, new athletes, new terminology, and attempt to win the job with maybe just 40 days or so of actual time to acquaint yourself? I don't think it's that difficult. I mean, football is football. You know, we're not, you're not asking to learn a whole lot. Um, you know, and, and as a play caller, if Malik is the guy, you're only going to call stuff that he's comfortable with. And, you know, whether he's been in the system or not, most most teams all run pretty much the same kind of plays or just call something different. So he has to just learn the terminology. And I'm sure he's already done all that. It really doesn't take a long, hard, you know, it's not that hard to learn a system in my opinion. So the advantage that Franks would have of working for more than a year and Del Rio would have with McIlwain is primarily learning more from him as opposed to terminology or playbook or that kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, I think different people learn different ways and, and can grasp systems quicker than others and and understand what you're trying to do from an offensive philosophy. Uh, I, you know, I've never been in a meeting with these guys, don't know a whole lot about them, but, you know, I'm just going from my experience. And, you know, I played in for six different teams in the NFL, all different terminology, different systems. And, but everybody runs the same plays. It's just you got to figure out what they call them and remember that and, and just go play. So. I mean, Del Rio knows the system obviously better than all of them. He's been in it uh, at different different other schools, um, but I, I don't make a whole lot of the whole. You know, he's got to learn the system. I mean, they're all sitting in the same meetings. They all have these iPads nowadays that you can learn your playbooks on while you're sitting at home. So that that's just that's not an excuse, in my opinion. What do you make of the practice player versus the gamer? Are you a guy that practices how you play in the game or that there's such a thing as a guy who just turns it on when the lights are on? No, that's a great question. I think kind of – I've seen both. Uh, I mean, Danny Werfel was the worst practice player you could ever see, but played extremely well in games. I wasn't a great practice player. Um, but then you've seen guys that are tremendous practice players just can't get it done when the lights are on. So, you know, you just got to – it's very intriguing leading into this Michigan game because there's so much uncertainty on both sides of the ball for both teams. And um, got to go and say, hey, you're our guy. Let's go win a football game, see if you can get it done. And then, you know, maybe after a quarter and a half, if things aren't going well, they may make a change or they may just stick with the guy. What would success be for this Michigan game? Does it have to be a win? If it's a loss, what does it look like? What can you say next Monday is a successful weekend? Well, obviously, it's win the football game. That's why you go. Uh, 
you know, I know a lot of people probably out there would rather see us have three, four, five hundred yards of offense, quarterback play great, and if we lose, they're going to be happy. I don't agree with that. You know, I want to see the quarterback play well. I want to see good offense and win the football game. You know, I don't think, you know, whether you win or lose this game, you still have all your goals out there because it's a, a tremendous opponent early in the season. So a lot of things can happen throughout the rest of the season. But um, I know that Coach Mack and his team, when they get on that plane and go to Dallas, they're going there to win the game. So there's a lot of new faces, especially on defense this year, and a lot of returners on offense this year. You mentioned the uncertainty for both Michigan and Florida. What's your gut feel having covered the team from the outside and obviously knowing a lot about the personnel? Is this going to be a season that has maybe a potential for more upside? Certainly there's a downside scenario, but what's your what's your gut? Is this going to be a season where you kind of feel like at the end of the year we're turning a corner uh, and we're moving into a new direction where we're maybe more of an offensive identity uh, and that sort of situation, or or just what's you know what's your thought, what's your feel? Well, I think most people want to see good offense. It's year three, Coach Mack. You know, usually they say in the third year of a new head coach, that's the year when when things turn around. And I think that's what they're hoping for. I think defensively, we lost some very good players to the National Football League, but we're always going to have good players here at Florida on defense. I think Randy Shannon and his staff, Chris Rump on the defensive line. They will get it done. The only concern, I know we lost a couple guys in the secondary. Marcel Harris' injury really hurts us. But these guys will step up. The depth at linebacker hurts us right now. We had some young guys that got a chance to play last year. I think they'll play at a high level this year. But behind them, we got some extremely young guys with no experience. So, um, you know, the outlook is, you know, Florida's got a lot of big games all at home. Uh, I, You know, the goal is to get to Atlanta. And we've gotten to Atlanta the last two years with pretty much no offense at all. I think that will be much improved this year, hopefully a lot improved. And I see us back in Atlanta. I like it. I like that prediction. Well, as always, Shane, it's great spending some time with you. Uh, We look forward to chatting with you again sometime in the future. He is Shane Matthews. You can catch his show, Ackerman and Matthews, on ESPN Gainesville. Appreciate you having me. James, finally here. Let's talk about a real football game that will happen. The Gators are playing Michigan in Jerry World. This is a fascinating game on so many levels. Michigan's favored by three and a half. That's really interesting as well. James, give us a little brief overview about Michigan. Well, Michigan is returning the least amount of starters in Division One or FBS. They have 17 new starters, 10 on defense. That Seven sounds almost offense. impossible. It, it, it does sound impossible, in fact. It, it's, it's kind of amazing. However, what Michigan has, maybe that the Gators don't have, is a bevy of top, 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 top recruits that Harbaugh's pulled in each year that he's been there to fill in those holes. But 17 new starters on this Michigan football team. The Gators, on the other hand, as we've just chronicled, we have 10, maybe 11 new starters, depending on how you want to look at it. Nine of those are on defense. So we have an offense that's almost entirely intact and a defense that's almost entirely new. So in some ways, these teams are kind of mirror images of each other. Harbaugh and McIlwain started at the same time. Uh, Of course, I I sort of famously mentioned that Harbaugh was my dream coach. So here we are in this really interesting matchup. Like, how is this going to go now that we're a few years down the road? Who's built a better program? Uh, What's that kind of look like? I think both fan bases will use that as a measuring stick, although it's not a perfect way to do it because you never want to measure what your team looks like on game one. It's far more important to look to measure what they look like near the end of the season. But 
Really, really interesting matchup. Two coaches that uh, one in McIlwain who's sort of under the radar and one who is the radar in Harbaugh and uh, and two teams who have trended differently. You know, Florida under the radar very much nationally. Michigan, again, very much the radar, even though they have really not won anything quite yet uh, under Jim Harbaugh. But on paper, this looks like a really good game, which is why it's at three and a half points in the point spread. Maybe that would be tighter if Cali wasn't out. And I think the the question to ask yourself is, are you confident as a Gator fan? Most people seem to say no. Are you confident as a Michigan fan? Most Michigan fans seem to say yes. So you have a, might- a confidence difference with each fan base that is probably the most interesting part of this matchup when it comes to the culture. And that might come down to quarterback. I mean, coaching, you can talk about that, but I think Michigan knows who their quarterback is and Florida does it. So just from that alone, if you want to talk about a confidence gambling standpoint, I think that's probably the thing that weighs most on this line. Because otherwise, it's crazy that a team that has 17 new starters is favored over, you know, a top 25 SEC team. Um, but the uncertainty of quarterback, I think, weighs so heavily on everything and the Harbaugh effect. And just how poorly we played on offense. We've talked about this consistently. It's sort of like a total killer when you're when you're as bad as we've been on offense for anyone to get behind you Michigan has been extremely good on offense numbers wise and so their fan base naturally feels good they're also extremely good on defense last season so really an interesting matchup to sort of gauge where these programs are going um, Alan the biggest question of course you just raised we talked a lot about this in the opener in the opening half of this pod but now we're going to talk about this tactically who is going to play quarterback this weekend and I want I want two angles on this the first angle is who is McElwain going to play and why do you think so and who would you play and why well yeah you talked about who you would play and I'm 100% agreement in agreement with you that the guy I want to see out there is Felipe Franks because he has by far the highest ceiling for the future of this program and I think over the course of the season as well now if you were playing one game like you know, we're just doing an exhibition here and we're playing one game, I think the obvious answer would be Malik Zaire because he's the guy who is the oldest, has the most, like, experience and maybe the most diverse set of skills. But I think that that's going to set this program back if Malik Zaire, unless he's just far and away better than what he showed at Notre Dame. The guy that I'm afraid that McElwain is going to start is Luke Del Rio. And I don't think Luke Del Rio is terrible. I think he's better than what he showed at the end of the year when he was hurt. But that would show like such a conservative point of view, in my opinion. Now, again, all this is the caveat. We're not at practice. We're not seeing these guys throw every day. I'm just going off what I think I know to be true about these guys. Um, and like James said, it's, a, it's an audition. But I, I think he might actually play Del Rio in this game, which I think would be a huge mistake. You raised an interesting point there where you chose Malik Zaire as the, the obvious choice in a one-game scenario. And I imagine if this is one game and this determines your fate, you win a national championship or not, you just a one-game season, who do you play? I think tactically, actually, in this situation, that, that I might lean towards playing Luke Del Rio which I'm bringing up to illustrate to you sort of how I'd like to think about football and how we think about it on this podcast. 
Luke Del Rio knows the offense better than anyone else does. He makes the short throws probably better than anybody else does. And you're facing a Michigan team that's got a bunch of new faces. So if I was trying to win one game, I'd probably roll out a game plan that tries to beat just Michigan. But we're not playing one game. We're playing an entire season. And in fact, losing this one game to Michigan will do nothing to hurt even our own national championship aspirations, given the schedule that we play. So this is not a one game season. This is an entire season. This is also a momentum building game. So if you throw Luke Rio out there, you risk losing your fan base. If Luke Rio plays poorly and you lose the game, people are going to be very upset at what has continued to be head-scratching quarterback decisions. If you roll Franks out there and he doesn't do so well, but he shows some flashes, that's fine. He's a young guy. People are going to roll with him. You're playing the more aggressive option. Uh, and if you roll Zaire out there, it almost to me sends a signal like, hey, I've worked with both Del Rio and Franks for years, and I can't get them there, but this guy who comes in in 40 days has barely played at Notre Dame. He can be the guy. There's a lot of weird signals going on there. So I don't know what McIlwain is going to do. My my gut gives me this really horrible feeling that he's he's going to want to play Luke Del Rio, but I'm hoping that he gets the better of himself and that Franks is the guy. I think deep down inside he knows Franks is the guy. And I think he's weighing that tactical decision that we just talked about, which is, well, can I beat Michigan, which would be important for the program, with a more conservative strategy? They've got a lot of new guys. Luke DeRiel probably makes less mistakes. He's a safer option. Uh, Can I beat Michigan that way? But I don't think that's the appropriate way to approach college football. You cannot approach it on a game-by-game tactical basis. Quarterbacks are not something you you sort of match up in that spectrum. It generally does not work. Uh, So... That's sort of the fascinating question going in Jim McElwain's mind. Uh, strategically, we have not seen him, in my opinion, make great decisions in this kind of environment. And obviously, like Alan said, we're not in practice. If I was in practice and I could talk to these guys and watch what they were doing and how they were throwing, by now, I would be very confident with who would be my guy. It concerns me that McElwain continues to like not pick guys, given all the practice that he's seen. Uh, there is a guy that certainly has proven that he should be the guy by this point in time. I think it would be important to name him. Uh, I don't think it's healthy for these guys as young men to have to deal with the constant sort of revolving door of every possible thing they do is scrutinized and and who's doing what. It's just not necessarily the best look, but we're going to find out whether or not we're any closer to resolving it this weekend. Uh, So with that then, Alan, who do you think going into this Michigan game gives the players the most confidence. And I like to look at the fat angle because that matters a lot. If you're a player on this football team, who do you get the most excited about being named the starter? Man, that's weird. I, and this might just go to what I've read about people responding to him personality-wise, and that might be Zaire. He's the biggest name. He's got, I think, a personality that lends himself to leadership. But I don't know if that's the route you want to go. I mean, it's certainly something to take into account. And, I think going, you know, he, yeah. and he's and does interesting things. He likes to play games. I feel like the whole Treon Greer thing. So obvious that Greer is better, but he didn't want to say that out loud. So who knows what he's doing right now? He, he definitely keeps these secrets close to the best. Yeah. And it's so interesting because the, the angle of what, what do the players want is, is probably Zaire from what we know. And that's why if you can put yourself in the mind of a college football coach, there's a lot of thoughts out there. Some are right, some are wrong. I think choosing who the players want in the college level to be your quarterback or who they feel best about is almost always a really bad barometer because most of the time they really don't know. 
they're not necessarily trained in strategic thinking or nor are they really all that analytical. It comes down to who they like, what's going on. But but I say that meaning there is a large component of that that has to do with how well a team performs in the field. When the team believes in its quarterback, both the offense and the defense, it plays differently. And that's typically won and lost by how well they play in games. And uh, certainly we saw that effect with Will Greer. And we'd love to see that effect with any one of these quarterbacks on Saturday. All right, let me ask you. Give me a. I know you looked at the film with Michigan. Give me some analysis. Like, how do they match up with what we know? And again, a lot of question marks for them and for us. New defensive coordinator for us, Randy Shannon. What did you pick up in in some of the stuff you looked at? Well, let's start with Michigan's offense first. That's that's well chronicled. Uh, it's been very consistent. Or Jim Harbaugh. They run a pro style power running attack based uh, on essentially really time-tested NFL principles. Lots of play action to get big plays, a playbook full of short crossing routes, uh, and West Coast offense style dig routes, hitch routes, uh, where you're you're really just trying to keep the defense spread and honest, uh, hit them with a power generally either up the middle or on the edge, and then hit them with a big play over the top. So when you look at Michigan's offense, it's really simple, but it's also really complex. Jim Harbaugh is a master at adding wrinkles into his personnel groupings to throw you off. And all it really takes is one little gap fake here or there, and uh, it leads to a big running play. So he he is absolutely every bit uh, a little piece of Vince Lombardi with some creative flair, where it's old school, power football, my guy versus your guy, but a little wrinkle here and there that you may not even perceive when you're watching it on film. Uh, that leads to big plays. So it's a lot to prepare for, for a new defense. And I'm going to flip over now before I talk about Michigan's defense to talk about Florida's defense, because that's a huge, huge matchup in this game. Florida playing a true power style like we're seeing here, uh, they don't actually face it that often anymore. You know, this is how the SEC used to play almost exclusively in the 90s. And nowadays, there's very few teams in the SEC that play this sort of style. Randy Shannon's defense I think is extremely well suited to match up with Michigan's offense, at least on paper. So Randy Shannon, almost no matter when he was a defensive coordinator as a top 10 defense. And one of the reasons why is he simplifies everything. He runs a very, very basic four, three, so four linemen, three linebackers. And the reason he keeps it so easy is he allows his players to just simply run through one gap. And we don't have time today to explain in depth what all this means, but as a defender, in a more complicated scheme, you might have gap responsibility in two gaps, which means you might line up on the line and have to worry about uh, two gaps opposing from you. So you have to control the gap, hold the line of scrimmage, think for a second. It slows down your ability to play on the line. Randy Shannon asked his lineman to hit a single gap. When the ball is hiked, you blow through that gap as hard as you possibly can. There is no thinking required. He is allowing them to be athletes. The same thing goes for the linebackers. They have a different gap they're responsible for. Their job is to take this part of the field. That is very beneficial when it comes to playing against a team like Michigan. Because what that means is each player is essentially trying to get upfield in the gap they are assigned to, which then allows the linebackers on the edge to be free to pursue any plays that bounce outside or attempt to run power off the edge, which has had a lot of success against Michigan's offense. If you look at the film last year, both Iowa uh, and Wisconsin had tremendous success stopping Michigan, and both of them ran base 4-3 defenses with the occasional nickel where they essentially would slide over to the strong side and they would do exactly what I'm talking about. Jeff Collins' defense is a little different in that tooling and that scheming, so these small changes are actually pretty important. On film study, I like our matchup against Michigan. The question that is always the question you have to ask yourself when you play Michigan 
is can you win the battle at the line of scrimmage? If you can stop Michigan from running the football very well, they are extremely one-dimensional. They will not pass the football very well. Uh, Spate has oftentimes struggled with accuracy down the field. So if I'm looking just at film study and I look at our defense first, their offense and the question marks we have versus the talent they have, they have three new offensive linemen. Uh, those guys are, are heralded but unproven. I think the matchup goes to us, offense versus defense. I feel like our style and our talent lends itself well to this matchup with Michigan. I would expect us, if, 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 we can avoid getting burnt on big plays in the play action, to do well in this football game. So that first part of it is an exciting narrative for me. And this game is really exciting style-wise based upon those two things. Now quickly flipping over to the Michigan defense, this is going to be a challenge for our offense. Even though they have essentially an entirely new defense, 10 new starters, they are an extremely aggressive defense. They play man-to-man on the edge. They play a lot of cover two, and they like to create chaos uh, through blitzing through a variety of angles. We have struggled in the past, especially last year, with teams that employed any sort of sophisticated blitz strategy. This year, we're going to be tested right out of the gate right out of the gate. Michigan is going to challenge us. They are going to attack us. They are well aware of our of our quarterback issues, and I do not expect them to sit back and play coverage. Uh, so that opens up chances for us to hit them deep, which this goes to a very similar sort of discussion we've had in the past with, do you put your better deep ball throw in there in Franks and let him go to work? Uh, or do you try to run more underneath stuff against the defense that really sort of wants you to run underneath stuff? So stylistically, this game offers a lot of interesting angles. You have their power pro style offense contrasted with our spread, more spread style, still pro style, but more spread style via the pass offense. And then you have their man-to-man aggressive press defense versus our very base 4-3 cover two scheme, uh, which allows our guys to play a more simpler version of football than what Mission is going to do. So it's really going to come down to who can execute their style better. I firmly believe that. I think there are reasons to think we should be able to execute our styles better than Michigan will in game one in this season, this particular moment, given the variables each team has. So, Alan. It's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. it's a fascinating look at both these teams. I mean, stylistically, there's so many questions. I mean, do they even run the similar defense with so many new guys. I mean, I think they will. They have a, their defensive coordinator returning, but I mean, it's going to be really cool to watch this play out in real time. Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be an extremely fun game to watch. You you've heard me say on film Florida State's offense is the most complicated to stop, and and I remain true to that. Michigan's offense is very simple when you watch it, but also one of the most difficult to stop because of how well they run their power plays. And, and that's going to be what the game hinges on. If you're if you're at the stadium or you're watching on television and we are stopping their first down run plays, we are going to have a lot of success in this game. If we are not, there's almost no way we can win this game. Uh, that's how important running the football is to Michigan. And, and that's what you're going to have to look for in this matchup. So let's talk a little about expectations on offense and defense. Uh, it's hard to know. I'm talking about film from last year. We're talking about schemes and styles from last year. This is not a typical episode where we can actually look at what's been happening. So some of this stuff's in a vacuum. Let's try to determine what would be success this particular weekend. And let's start with the offense. What would you want to see from them? What kind of numbers are you looking for to make you feel like this is a successful game against an opponent like Michigan? I'd love to see us throw for at least 200 yards. 
Um, that's a pretty meager number. Um, but yeah, it's a, some consistency on offense. I, I feel like, you know, we talked about this a lot last year, you know, you never knew what you're going to get. And then on defense for us, we do need to hold up against the run. I would expect, especially with all the new people in the secondary, for us to give up more big plays than you've seen this defense give up in a while, um, you know, minus the Tennessee game last year. So maybe some more big plays that you're used to, maybe from us and against us, considering all the defense. Um, but we've got to – you're right, we've got to stop the run. And if we don't, this game is going to get ugly super quick. What about you? I'd like to see the offense – absolutely go for at least 200 yards passing. Maybe 250 is the number I'd really want to see. And that's because Michigan has an entirely new secondary. They're they're very inexperienced. They're all new starters. Uh, they have two new starters in their linebacking core. And really the strength of that defense, much like ours, is going to be their D-line, which is in fact very, very good. But I think that favors our matchup because our offensive line is our best part. So it's strength on strength. And then I think we have more strengths going down the line. So I think if we could pass for 250, That'd be really encouraging uh, if we can run the ball with any sort of competency for 100 yards. I think that'd be really encouraging. And, and I, I don't want to go as far as to say to expect those things. Michigan's defense was rather prolific last year for most of the season. And they have tremendous talent coming back in this season. But if we hit those numbers, 250 passing, 100 rushing, coming out of the gate against Michigan, I think that would be a tremendously good sign for this offense. And that's not a ton of yards in college football by any means, but that kind of balance for us would signal that we can move the ball against elite talent and we can do so competently on the defensive side. They return Wilson Spate or Wilton Spate rather, who is a safe option at quarterback struggles to throw. He's got a very limited ceiling, not super accurate on the deep ball. Uh, They lost their leading rusher, but everyone else is there. They have tremendously good fullbacks and they've got a bunch of new receivers. They've basically lost every single receiver there is, but they've got some five-star guys that were the best in the country at those positions now stepping in. So it's really going to be youth on youth for a large regard in this game, which is going to be more helpful typically on offense than it is on defense, but that's where the Randy Shannon component comes in. So I I would like to see our defense limit their play-action passing game and, and control their running game at a reasonable level. If Michigan runs for less than 150 yards and they don't complete a, a touchdown on a play action pass, you probably beat them. Uh, so I would like to see some, some numbers somewhere in that range, but I really, really like to see us not make any mental errors. I think that's what I'm looking for most on defense is any mental error we make. Let, let's have it be a small mental error as opposed to a busted coverage for a touchdown mental error. I think that will show me that the coaching staff uh, has spent the fall camp well and has minimized sort of the critical mistakes that can be made when young guys are playing. And that would be extremely good to see that sort of coming out of the gate in game one. All right, let's do it. Let's make a prediction. James, go for it. I like the Gators in this game. Everything, every feeling I have uh, feels like Michigan is being overvalued and we're being undervalued. After watching film, going down the rosters, looking at who they have, who we have, I like us in this game. I have no clue what kind of score range this will be in. It's just so difficult because there's so many new faces, but it feels like a game that's going to be played in the 20s. Uh, I like us to win this game 27-20, maybe even by a full touchdown. I think it will be close, but I'm going to go with a 27-20 score, and I'm sure Gator fans everywhere would be thrilled 
with a start uh, to a season like that. But I, I have to say that maybe I'm just naively optimistic. But I, I actually feel I actually feel pretty good about this game. Alan, what do you got? I'm not feeling as good at this point. I feel like our offensive line not being up to stopping what is you know an, a young but exceptionally talented Michigan defensive line. Um, I'm going to go 23-20 Michigan. Which would also be a, a solid result for the Gators. Certainly. And yeah, certainly, certainly, certainly. And that D-line you mentioned of of, uh, of Michigan is extremely solid. Rashawn Gary, who we're going to hear about a little later, and then Hurst. Those two guys are, are going to both be starters in the NFL. Rashawn Gary has strong reviews as maybe one of the best defensive linemen ever, according to his coaches. I mean, they love this guy. And Greg Madison, who used to coach here for the Gators under Muschamp, is the D-line coach for Michigan. So... Uh, that that is a exceptionally strong unit, and I'm excited we play them right away because we've talked a lot about the O line needing to be the strength of this team. And if they can be the strength of this team in this kind of game, I think we have a lot to look forward to this season. Excited to welcome to the show Jim Brandstatter. He is currently the play-by-play for the Michigan Wolverines. He's also a former player and rather uh, excellent ambassador for Michigan. He's also the color commentator for the Lions. So the state of Michigan owes Jim quite the great debt. We are most excited to have him on the show today. Jim, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you. Enjoy talking football. Jim, what is it like to have Jim Harbaugh as your coach? You have seen a slew of tremendous coaches in Ann Arbor. What's it like to have Harbaugh? As yours, he's he's a little different. <laughs> he's at, at the Big Ten meetings this year. One of the announcers called him quirky, and I would think that that's correct. But all that quirkiness and 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 things that you might see, ultimately, when you get rid of all that and get down on the surface, he's a football coach and savant. He loves the game. Uh, everywhere he's been, he's been very successful. Uh, from the NFL to college, now back at Michigan, his home state, uh, his his alma mater. Uh, he may do things a little differently, but ultimately the product on the field is top notch and quality. And and that's that's what it's like working with Jim. Sometimes he'll you know he'll say something or do something, and you'll kind of turn your head sideways. But ultimately, at the end product, you get the idea. Ah, he knows exactly what he's doing. And that's kind of how it's like working with Jim. So you played for Bo Schembechler, the legend. Uh, are there any similarities and differences between Jim Harbaugh and Bo? Yeah, very, very similar because Jim played for Bo too. And uh, the similarity, and his dad, Jack, coached for Bo on Bo's staff. And the similarities are that they are workaholics. They are uh, Their attention to detail is second to none. They are committed, and they want their players to be committed to being the best that they can be. I mean, Jim and Bo saying we're attacking each day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind, I mean, they're interchangeable. That's the way Bo did it, and that's what Jim is teaching. So from that perspective, they're very much alike. They're a little different in a sense. But Jim is a little more, I mean, uh, I don't want to say this, circumspect in how he approaches you know, the passing game and some other things. Uh, whereas Bo was real simple, straightforward. We're going to run the ball. We're going to stop the run, period. That's what you get. This is Michigan. This is what we're going to hang our hat on. And every year we're going to use the, our talent and, and, and come after you. We're going to be uh, not a big secret. And, and that's kind of the way he coached. Jim will do some things 
differently in that regard where he'll give you five, six different sets. He'll come out and do something funny. He'll do a trick player there. Uh, that's a little different than Bo. But the fundamentals remain the same. We're going to run the ball. We're going to stop the run. That's kind of where both of them come down and uh, uh, leave their mark. So what do you think Jim's biggest accomplishment at Michigan has been? I mean, some people have you know, made a note that he's finished third you know, in the Big Ten. But uh, in your mind so far, what has been his biggest accomplishment? Well, I think one of the biggest things is, let's face it, he's put Michigan back on the map to some degree. I don't think Michigan ever left the map. But for a couple of three years there, they were not as relevant as they used to be. And Jim coming in and taking a 5-7 and seven team and winning 10 games in his first year, when most people thought he might be around 500, I thought that got everybody's attention. And the one thing he said at the uh, season-ending banquet for the football team, when all oh, they had over 1,000 people come and watch the banquet, and Jim got up and spoke, and he says, you know what I think we did this year more than anything? He said, we got our integrity back. And I think that's exactly what Michigan needed uh, from the Rich Rodriguez and the end of the Brady Hoke uh, coaching uh, uh, tenure. They needed to get that Michigan swagger, that, that integrity back, if you will. And they did. And, and Jim's the guy that brought it back now with what he's done in spring football, taking the team to Rome, what he's done during the season. Uh, being, you know, in his second year, being literally a couple of games away from being in the Final Four, uh, he, he really, he's really done remarkable things. So, you're right, he hasn't won a Big Ten championship yet, and I think that's next on his mind. He's got to beat Ohio State to beat your rival uh, and and win a championship. Those are the two things left. And believe me, he's as competitive as they come. That's that's number one on his list, I think. So we've already mentioned several news items with him. I could name off a bunch more. So for a guy who's always in the news, is that a distraction for the program or a benefit? I think it's a benefit. I mean, let me ask you this. Where did you go to school? University of Florida. Okay. You're a Gator. One of your head coach was in Rome and gave the Pope a helmet and a pair of shoes from Florida. (laughs) I would love it too. I can say. That's a marketing tool that any program in the country would want to have. Jim's done it. Nobody else has. So as a, as a Michigan guy, as a guy who graduated from Michigan, you're looking at that and you're saying, you know what? I mean, he's branding this program in the quote-unquote modern-day business term, and he's uh, making it get back to relevancy with victories, with national television exposure and off the field when he takes his team to Rome and meets with the Pope and gives him a winged helmet. How good can that be? And I don't, I don't, I don't see how you can, as a, as a, an alum or a guy who watches the program, not think that's a positive for your, your university and your football team. So other than the Pope, the big storyline this offseason with Michigan is the fact that they're replacing so many starters. So in light of that, do you feel like the expectations are any different in Ann Arbor this year? Nope. The expectations are always the same. Um, there are people in Ann Arbor, fans, that think that Michigan should win a national title every year. And that's the same expectation they're having this year. And Jim has done a great job on the recruiting trail. And they've got some of those recruits now are going to have to step up and play, those four- or five-star guys. And uh, everybody expects them to be be very good. Now, they're going to be young. 
but they're going to be very talented. And I think that's the beauty of this season. It's kind of like Christmas morning. You go down and see a bunch of presents under the tree. You're not sure what's in them, but you know they're good. And I think that's what we're going to see against Florida this coming Saturday. Speaking of the game against Florida, what is your thought on the game and what's sort of the, the meta narrative from the fans? Is this a game where they're thinking, hey, we throttled Florida two years ago. McElwain hasn't recruited at the same level that we have. This should be something that should be comfortable, even though we have 17 new starters. Or, or what's what's kind of the thought in Michigan right now about this game this weekend? You know, I'll be honest with you. I don't think the game two years ago means a darn thing. It has never come up on anybody's radar because Basically, there aren't many guys that are on either team that played in that game. Uh, and and it just take Rudox in his second year with the Lions. He was the quarterback in that game. And a lot of the guys from Florida that played in that game were in the NFL, too. So it's not like, you know, there's a lot of familiarity there. Uh, I think the idea, though, is Florida's a, an SEC team. They played in the championship game a year ago. They're a big-time program. They're a the SEC has a big-time reputation as being the most difficult and toughest conference in the country. That gets the Big Ten's attention more than anything, is that you've got a Big Ten team that's one of the big guys on the block, Michigan, going against one of the SEC teams with one of the big guys on the block, and that gets everybody's attention. I think that's going to be fun, and that's kind of how Michigan approaches it. It's not so much about two years ago. It's more about, you know, Michigan is – how good are we? And, and that Florida, because of how good they are, or the belief how good they are, is a good measuring stick for Michigan in this opener. If the coaches were flipped, do you think Michigan would still be favored by three or four points in this game? That's a great question. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I think I think this. If, if Florida didn't have the suspension, let me put it this way, I think Michigan probably it would be a pick-em game. I think Callaway makes a bit of a difference there. So I think that Michigan, again, with their youth, everybody's kind of taking a step back. They're not sure what they, they're going to get. And I think Florida's the quarterback question in Florida being somewhat unanswered leaves a lot of doubt in everyone's eyes in regards to where this game goes. So were the coaches flipped? Would it be different? No, I don't think so. I think talent ultimately wins, and uh, young talent against some talent on Florida. Uh, like I said, I, I don't, I don't think it would would matter one way or the other. I think Jim gets a little more, Harbaugh gets a little more national press, but uh, you know McElwain has done pretty well down there, and he's got to the SEC championship game, and you know lost to a team that maybe should have won the national championship two or three years in a row. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty strong stuff. So. I don't think the coaches flipping would make a difference in the uh, in the in the point spread. Okay, so with all this transition, can you give us maybe one player on offense and one player on defense for Michigan for Gator fans to look out for? Wow, uh, the guy on defense is uh, simple: it's Rashawn Gary. He wears number three. He, he was a top high school prospect coming out of New Jersey. Uh, played last year as a true freshman, but he is really everybody's expecting him to step forward and be uh, a, just a, a big-time defensive end edge rusher. So Rashawn Gary would be that guy on defense. On offense, I would say there's 
a couple of guys. I would say they'd be receivers. True freshmen again. Um, Tariq Black and Donovan Peoples-Jones. Both guys are big, uh, and both guys have had really good early fall camps. Um, and again, that's that's thinking about you know names you may not have heard of, but those guys are maybe breakout guys. Michigan's got a lot of they got a great running back core and all the other stuff, but you've heard of them. They played last year, but Peoples Jones and, and Black did not. They're freshmen, and they could have impact on this team. So you're looking for guys that would be breakout guys. That's where I'd go on Michigan's team. All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the knowledge and the insight into Michigan. And uh, yeah, I hope it goes great for Michigan, but maybe not too great. So thanks so much for your time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's going to be fun. I know that. It's going to, too, I mean, really good, proud programs with a lot of talent battling it out. And uh, I look forward to it. Like I said, I think it's going to be a great measuring stick for both teams, really. Let's take a look at the upcoming season and do a win-loss for each game. We're going to walk through each week for the Gators, and we're going to predict what is going to happen. We were actually pretty good at this game last season. In fact, I think we were really, really close to what the overall record was. Both of us were. Uh, Halfway through the season, we'll step in and amend it and do like a second one. But for now, let's walk by uh, each game and, and see what we got. Alan, walk us through it. Yeah, one of my favorite little traditions here. All right, so... I've given us a loss at Michigan. You give us a win. We'll go through this real quick. Uh, our second game, Northern Colorado. Win. Win, of course. Tennessee. Win. Always a win against Tennessee. Tennessee is really – Tennessee should be down this year. We need to win that game. Win. Yes. We cannot allow them to be anything more than the champions of life. <laughs> All right. A scary little game here at Kentucky. Kentucky is is one of the teams I think is going to have a great season in the SEC. They return the most starters of any team in the SEC, along with Vanderbilt. Uh, they are primed for an eight or even nine win season on the high end, but we still have a lot more talent than they do. I like us to win this game, but this could become uh, the game that Kentucky fans have won for a long time against Florida, which is a close game. I'm going to go ahead and predict a loss here. Oh. I feel like this is the year they finally get us. Oh. Sad to say. Wow. Okay. Because it was between this one and the next one for me, Vanderbilt, another spunky East team. If McIlwain is who I think he is and the program is going in the proper direction, we need to beat Vanderbilt and Kentucky. They can be close. It can be a well-fought game. You have to win these games. I'm going to go with the win. I'm going to go with the win as well. All right. The return of the Bayou Bengals, LSU. I maybe I'm sounding too optimistic right now, but I think this is a win, and, and that's this is entirely triggered by my belief or lack of belief in Ed Orgeron. I like what they've done. I love who they've hired as their offensive coordinator. They have a ridiculously, absurdly talented defense that is going to give us problems. We've struggled with the three-four. Every team that runs it, it's just too far away to really know what the heck's going on right now. And because of that, the curse of them moving the game is going to continue to hang over them. And I'm going to pick a win. I'm picking that purely on emotion. I'm scared of Matt Canada at this point as well. Who knows what he'll do. But Orgeron plus the curse, give us a win. All right. A rare opponent here, Texas A&M. I am obviously feeling way too optimistic to be playing this game. Uh, I don't know when my losses are going to come in. I feel like JT, again, on the show, is getting two name drops with the most (laughs) ecstatic. But uh, 
It's just maybe it's playing in the swamp. I also think that they have so AM has a lot of questions to answer. We it's a good matchup for us. I'm gonna unpick us to beat AM. I'm gonna pick a win here as well. Our old pals, the Georgia Bulldogs, Kirby Smart on his unlit bonfire. Are you picking a win for Georgia, James? No. No, I think Georgia, I shorted Georgia in my poll. I shorted them. I think they're going to struggle this year. They're on everyone's hype train, blah, 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 blah. I don't buy it. I still think they have talent gaps. I think next year is going to be a really good year for them. I think this year they're going to be up and down still. I think we beat them. I agree. Uh, Missouri. This one's on the road. (laughs) I hang. I hang with this one because I think Missouri is going to be good this year. Uh, and, and we're going to lose one of these games that I have not predicted us to lose yet because we're not going to be however many I know we are right now. That's not going to happen. Uh, I, <laughs> oh man, I'm going to pick a win. Um, I just, I, I want to say loss because I don't have a loss yet, but I don't believe it. I do. I think we're going to beat Missouri at Missouri and took a win. Agree. Um, I'll pick a win there too. This may be your loss at South Carolina. No. It's a win. I'm just going to keep going wins because I think that Vegas-wise, and I know this to be true, the Georgia game, we would not be favored if we played it right now, but that's a coin flip. The LSU game, we would not be favored in. Uh, the Michigan game, we're not favored in. But they're all really close, so those are three. The rest of these games we've gone through were the favorites, including the South Carolina game, which we will be the favorite. I'm gonna dangerous pick. game. Da- oh, all these games are dangerous. This is why it's why it's kind of crazy. I'm picking all wins because this isn't really true. I know. It's, I'm gonna. This is funny. This is not really real. Uh, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm okay, gonna, so next week I'm gonna pick. Uh, I'm gonna pick a win, but I can assure you this is this is going way too this. Undefeated. Yeah, yeah. Heading into UAB wins both there. Yep. And then I assume that you're gonna pick loss. A loss. That's a loss of Florida State. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately, I have to pick a loss there as well. Until we beat them, I don't know that I can pick us to win it. Yeah. So that I've and, got us at nine and three, and you've got us at a sterling. Yep. Eleven in one season, and then I have us losing. I have us losing our our uh, game against Bama, who whoever it will be in the West, but it'll be Bama, which yeah. gives which gives me my ceiling my ceiling scenario. So I think as you go game by game, I wanted to give you the sort of. That's what I'm looking at situation. Uh, a because it was fun, and B because I think I actually do think there's a good narrative for that to happen. I think all of our games are winnable. Sure. I, I think Florida State's the team I look at and think if we were to win that game, that would be a very big upset in my mind. I think they're further along than we are right now, uh, and I don't I don't think we're going to reach their height this season, which kills me to say that. But I think the rest of these teams, they have their own question marks in tremendous fashions. So. But hey, after this weekend, I come on the podcast and, and I have every right to amend all those picks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, every one of these games is winnable and every one is losable. That's what it's going to make for a fun season. All right, James, let's jump in and, and pick some of the big games of the weekend. Let's do this real quick. Uh, let's start with Maryland-Texas, which is not a big game for the weekend on most people's radar, but Texas favored by 18 and a half at home. No more Charlie Strong. They have the hottest coast in the country there. Tom Herman taking over. Maryland is a team on the upswing. DJ Durkin, uh, former Gator coach, is there. He's got him going in the right direction. This is a game a lot of people are looking at to see if Texas for real or not. And that's why we're kind of putting it on this this projection window. What do you got, Alan? Texas versus Maryland. If you're giving me the points, I'm taking Maryland, but definitely Texas in the game. Yeah, I think Texas has to win this game. They're at home. They will. I, I think this game, this is a tough game to bet on. I would not bet on this game. I think Maryland could get annihilated. 
I think they could also be close. But uh, either way, Texas, I think, is going to be good this year. Uh, Appalachian State at Georgia. Georgia favored by 14 and a half. Very tricky opening game here. I mean, Georgia played almost every game of the season close. Like almost every one of their wins was close and a lot of their losses very close. So, I, I mean, I would definitely take the points in this App State game. I would take the points, and I'm going to pick App State to beat Georgia in this game. Whoa. App State is really good this year. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm sort of just making some crazier picks than normal, which is good for you guys. I think a lot of you think I'm like a buttoned-up, really conservative analyst on the show. Well, I'm taking some chances, but I think I think this is a very winnable game for Appalachian State. I think it's the right time for this game to be played. I do think Georgia has talent. I'm not underplaying them at all, but uh, I, you know, I like Appalachian State in this game. West Virginia... And my favorite quarterback in recent era, Will Greer, at Virginia Tech with one of my favorite coaches right now. Virginia Tech favored exactly. by four and a half. This is a great game. I can't wait to watch this game. Fawtech by four and a half. What do you got? I mean, I'm tempted to take the Will Greer-led Mountaineers, but I, I mean, Virginia Tech at home, I think I have to go with Virginia Tech here. Yeah, Will Greer has got a basically an entirely new team around him. West Virginia won, I think, 10 games last year. Uh, but this year they have got like a just a ton of new people, almost an entire new offense, all new receivers. I'm going to take Votek. I think that it's a better coach in that program, but I hope it's like 35 to something, 35, 34, and Will Greer just slays it, which is what I expect. But either way, can't wait for that one. All right, Texas A&M at UCLA in the Rose Bowl. UCLA favored by four and a half. Critical year uh, for UCLA and especially their somewhat controversial, although I don't know why it's really controversial quarterback, uh, Josh Rosen. I mean, there's no better team than Texas A&M in week one, right? They, <laughs> they look awesome week one, so I'm going to take them. Yeah, I think UCLA is like a quarterback and then a team that's really not that great around them. Uh, although A&M is, is confusing as well, but I'll take A&M in that situation on the road. All right, the big one, Florida State, Alabama. Alabama is a seven-point favorite, which is truly amazing in a matchup between two top three teams where Florida State is absolutely loaded and Bama is still getting a touchdown on them on a neutral site. What do you got there? I mean, the only team better than A&M in week one actually is Bama. They crush souls in these neutral site games. I, I mean, I have to go with Bama. I mean, how, it's the Death Star. I don't know how you pick against them. You don't pick against them and I'm going to pick against them. I think that Florida State <laughs> is going to win this game. I actually do think Florida State could win this game is the better way to say it. I don't think they're going to win. I'm going to pick them here, and there's one reason. Jalen Hurts, as we talked about on the pod last year, he trended way down. Teams know how to stop him. Here's the situation. Unless Jalen Hurts has addressed his complete, and I mean complete, inability to complete a pass further than 10 yards down the field that's not a go route, Florida State could give Bama all kinds of trouble. If Jalen has fixed that part of his game, Bama will win this game. But that's a big, big, big if to me. Uh, he he is extremely limited, in my opinion, in the passing game, and Bama wins in spite of that. I'm not so sure they're going to be able to do it against Florida State's defense. All right. Well, we'll see. You made some wild picks there. I love it. Yeah. You know, start the year off right. Uh, so with that, just a quick review of the new model for the show. You can catch episode zero for all the details. I'm just going to give you a quick one minute primer. Uh, this, and then along with next, next week's first half of the episode is going to be free and available to everyone on iTunes. And after that, uh, the only way that you will be able to access full access, full episodes of the show will be on Patreon. 
And you can find the links on our Facebook page and our Twitter page. Uh, they're right there. And you just simply go on to Patreon, go to our page. It's two bucks a month. And then you'll get access to every single episode via an exclusive RSS feed. Uh, again, you can listen to episode zero for all the details on why that's happening. Uh, there will no longer be advertised on the show of any kind. So we're ad-free, supported by you on Patreon. And uh, we look forward to bringing you all of the content you enjoy for the entirety of this season. As always, if you like the show, if you like the content, please drop us a like on Facebook. Uh, send us a message on Twitter. Send us a message on Facebook. We love to hear from you. It's what keeps Alan and I going. And uh, on behalf of Alan in Moscow and myself here in Gainesville, Florida, uh, thanks for listening. We look forward to being with you next week after what is hopefully a rousing opening win against Michigan in Dallas. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.